Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. As always, we are here with you, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yes, I'm here. I felt like making really awkward segues this morning when we recorded this. <laughs> Got my attention. I feel, I feel angular and jaggy. So, And I'm Pastor Dominic Riley, the boy you love to hate or hate to love, whichever it is. The boy that the world forgot. The boy that the world forgot, the techno-viking. You were raised by what, chimpanzees? Cyborg chimpanzees. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> they have violent weapons, too. We we're all part of a secret government experiment. Kind of like the men who laugh at goats. Okay. <laughs> that was a deep reference, right? Yeah. But uh, no, we are here again with you today. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for joining in with us again. We thought it might be kind of fun, at least fun for us, since this podcast is essentially just the manifestation of our collective subconscious. To uh, go back to Albrecht Peters and now move on to his second book in his commentary on Luther's catechisms, The Creed, or just Creed, if you're a Rocky fan. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Another Not the Creed, just Creed. That's right. <laughs> now I'm thinking of Scott Stapp standing on a mountain with his arms open. <laughs> well, I'm just singing Eye of the Tiger in my head. So. There we go. All right. Uh, so the foreword is by Gottfried Seabass. He's an ill-tempered Seabass with a laser uh, on his head. And this is translated by my friend Tom Trapp, uh, Mr. Professor Thomas Trapp, Reverend Dr. Thomas Trapp, oh, okay. who teaches at Concordia, Uni- or Concordia University St. Paul and also serves as pastor. Um, but uh, today in the Creed, today in the Creed, we're going to go to page 248 and 249 with the big three. Sanctification based on justification, appropriate for the proper ordering of a Christian life. Hmm. Nice subheading. Sanctification based on justification. Should, that should be the title of this podcast, right? Yeah, that's Actually, easy to get that'll to. That'll get listeners. Chewy. Thanks for listening, listeners. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to our incredibly long and tedious and pedantic podcast titles. No, that wouldn't that wouldn't be helpful. But um, yeah, anyways, let's, uh, you know, what I was thinking about, I don't know why I listened to our last podcast in the car as I do. Um, I must have, I, it was a weird morning. I must have been listening to the wrong podcast or the right podcast. We started talking about white male privilege. Like where, where did that tangent come from? <laughs> I don't remember. Like I started listening to it. I was like, what, why did we, why were we talking about this? Why did we get afternoon there? actually? Maybe I was, so, yeah. Those are the things you think about in the afternoon, you know, it when is, you're fatigued right? and you're just too like, much data. <laughs> It's a data dump. That's what a podcast is for me. It's a data dump. Is that the one Just where a, I brought up the neo-Nazi? I think it was. Maybe it was. I can't remember anymore. They all bleed together at a certain point. Again, we're just having a conversation. We're just the entertainment. Yeah. I mean, neo-Nazi is white male privilege. I can see those. Actually, they do. Yeah, there you go. Hand and glove. Yeah. It's a marriage. It's a marriage. It's a marinade. But uh, yeah, so if you want to grab Creed by Albrecht Peters... And turn to page 248, the third article about God's spirit. We'll get into the whole matter of sanctification based on justification. Or as uh, we often say, pastorally speaking, sanctification is just getting used to being forgiven. That's really what holiness means in a third article sense is, how is it that if God alone is holy, I can claim that I'm holy or the Holy Spirit makes me holy? And as Dr. Luther points out in relation to the third article, Holy Spirit, holy is an adjective. It describes the work of the Spirit. It's not a noun. To say Holy Spirit or God's Holy Spirit is redundant because God's name is holy in and of itself, Mm -hmm. as is God. And therefore, Holy Spirit describes what he does. That is the activity of the Spirit is he makes holy people, holy things. And therefore, 
to be justified is simply to be grounded in the declaration by the preacher God has sent to you that you are forgiven for Christ's sake. Mm. And then the rest of your life is simply getting used to hearing and living in the reality that despite yourself, in spite of what you see, taste, touch, and feel with your five senses, which are all under the authority and bound in sin, you are holy. You are sanctified because God declares you sanctified for Christ's sake, not for your own sake. And therefore, the Holy Spirit's job, primary vocation is essentially to clear away anything that stands between you and Jesus, you and justification. But that's not the common understanding of sanctification, I think. At least not the one I encounter. Not re- not in the United States, I wouldn't say. No, it's, I think- it's, it's, it's less grammatically passive and it's more active, right? So we, we're the subject, we're the subject, we're the one doing it. And, uh, you know, we make ourselves holy by some means or some activity. Oh, very much so. It's very late medieval. <laughs> well, in the American evangelical tradition, which is coming out of the Baptist tradition, the Reformed tradition, which goes all the way back to late medieval Roman Catholic tradition, which we might try, touch on in regards to Luther's writing of his catechism, you are active in sanctification. You are not passive. And this is one of the radical turns that Luther makes in his teaching that really angered a lot of people, especially people who were so firmly grounded in the late medieval Roman Catholic tradition around this whole issue of sanctification or personal holiness. And later, of course, too, obviously, uh, Lutherans and Reformed folks later after Luther also tried consistently to reverse Luther on passive justification, that we are passively justified and passively sanctified. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, is proven by the fact that in the small catechism in the third article, all the verbs of salvation are the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit runs all of them. And that's the change um, from the medieval catechisms, right? Because they they actually, they broke it not into the three persons of the Trinity, but into, I think it was like, it depends on which catechism, but like seven parts. And yeah. so all the, all you know, everything that belongs to the church and all the works of the Holy Spirit in the church are, were actually disconnected from the Holy Spirit. They talk about the Holy Spirit yes. separately from, from the gifts. Right. Well, and it's all grounded in a little L doable law because Mm -hmm. the language of the late medieval catechisms was the language of empowering and enabling. The language of modern Protestantism in regards to this, the work of the Spirit and the work of sanctification is empowering and enabling. And yet that language does not occur in the catechisms, at least Lutheran catechisms. And that's because it's not do this, don't do that, get the reward, avoid the punishment, but rather... Jesus did this, Jesus did not do this, Jesus suffered the punishment of God for you, the wrath of God for you in your place, he's your Mm stand-in. And therefore, if the Son who has accomplished this work for you says you are holy, then you are. But you are only holy insofar as you've forgiven for Christ's sake. Forgiveness makes one holy. Yeah, and for God to speak is to do. So if God says you are justified, then you are, whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you seem, whether you look at yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, I can see something here. Hmm. In fact, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, Luther's argument for how the spirit works in hiddenness and under the sign of the opposite is so that we don't take credit for our good works. We don't take credit for our own holiness. We don't take credit for our own sanctification because of course he is pushing back against the late medieval Roman Catholic teaching on sanctification, which is like you said, active, not passive. It's kind of like treating the Christian church like you're in uh, Boy Scouts, right? And you have to get all your merit badges. Right, exactly. <laughs> once you have the once you have your vest completely full of merit badges, then you get to go to the next level. That's right. Then you're an eagle Christian. Yeah. Eagle. <laughs> or actually, I was I was relating it to the Masons because you hit 32nd mm-hmm. level Scottish Rite Mason, then you get to be right. a Shriner. 
And the same is true of Scientology, all the different levels of Scientology that you pass through. Oh, Maybe true. that's where L. Ron Hubbard got his levels from, as he stole it from the Masons. Mm. But as we were talking about in adult Bible study Sunday morning, we love lists. <laughs> the old Adam loves lists. That's why there's top five, top 10, top 50, top 100, best athlete ever, top 100 albums ever. Every 4th of July, at least in Minnesota, they have the top 100 singles of all time. We love lists. Ten Commandments, four-fold method of interpreting scripture, the seven pillars of Islam. We love lists. Because top five places for coffee in uh, Louisville. <laughs> right. We love lists because it gives us control. And even deeper than that, the reason that there's so much law preaching, little l law preaching, not God's actual word of law, but our interpretation of God's word of law, which is delivered in doable doses, of course, because rather than say these these commands are impossible for us, but they're possible for Jesus to obey and, and complete fulfill for us. What ends up happening is with those little L law sermons that dominate so much of the Christian church in the United States, which by the way is why Christianity is in decline in the United States, because mm-hmm. we don't preach the God, we don't let the gospel dominate or predominate, but we let the little L law preaching predominate because we love to do we love lists and say like morality and then moral improvement or moral empowerment right and it's not even good moral it's not even good moral philosophy that's the thing (laughs) it's more like jewish mother-in-law nitpicky coming over to check on the wedding china if it's chipped or not kind of morality it's it would be nice if it were like tiger mom instead right (laughs) yeah it's like i don't like what you're doing therefore that must not be sanctified living regardless of whether it's an actual sin or not or is classified as an actual violation or trespassing the commandment. I don't like what you're doing because either A, I do it and I don't like being reminded that I do that thing, or B, I can't or don't, won't do that thing and you're doing it offends and bothers me. Yeah. Importantly, then it's external, right? It's, it's enforced or um, what do you want to say? Applied to you. Right. From outside. It's not, it's not your own determination. It's one that's given to you by some external authority. The... No. Yeah. And it's all guilt-based. It's all guilt-driven. And I think probably the most difficult thing, we talked about this in Confirmation the other day, we talked about in adult Bible study too, is guilt. It's all guilt-based. And we love guilt. As much as we say we hate feeling guilty or being accused of something, we actually love, we love guilt. Guilt, in the positive sense, guilt motivates us to get up off the couch and exercise and get healthy and get in shape. And guilt in a negative sense drives us to surround ourselves with people who fulfill for us the way that we see or think about ourselves. Right. And therefore, if we think that we don't deserve happiness or we deserve to be abused and beat up or something, or that we don't deserve to be successful, we'll surround ourselves with those types of people because we feel guilty for whatever reason. It motivates us. And therefore, those kinds of sermons then, the root message is you should feel guilty and that guilt should motivate you to want to be better. Let your good be better and your better be best and God will do the rest which is very late medieval and modern Protestantism. Isn't that an interesting turn, how it you know comes full circle that way? Yeah, well, I think historically speaking, if you look at late medieval Roman Catholic teaching and then look at modern Protestant teaching, Luther is more of a anomaly. He's more of a glitch in the matrix mm. than someone that people looked at and went, yes, this is the right direction to go in, which is why modern Luther scholars have made comments to me or in their lectures that were this is the problem for Lutherans is that we're not Protestant and we're not Roman Catholic. And so the temptation is always to jump in one or the other ditch. I think actually Herman Sazé made this comment too, mm-hmm. but the temptation is never to be Lutheran. 
especially Reformation Lutheran, the temptation is always to jump into the Protestant ditch or the Roman Catholic ditch. Yeah, to swing back and forth even um, from era to era. And swing back and forth, especially, yeah. 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 So, so you see like liturgical renewal <laughs> stuff, you know, mm-hmm. can be driven by um, kind of an, you know, a Roman idealism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, and then it'll swing the other direction and people will become like minimalists, but they're really kind right. of in, in the way of a Protestant. Mm-hmm. And, and, right. not, and not just embrace the fact that uh, we don't really fit in either camp. <laughs> um, you know, how does this help receive the gift or how does it right. actually take, you know, distract us from the gift? Well, and who wants to stand in the middle of the road and be screamed at from both ditches? That's right. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. And, and be no one's friend. <laughs> yeah. And to be no one's friend. That's why Herman Sazi calls it the lonely way. Yeah. Because it's not only the lonely way between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, but even then, because Lutherans are jumping in these ditches, or like you said, going back and forth between the ditches, there's always the pressure then internally to follow, to jump in with the herd and run off one cliff or the other cliff. Mm. <clears throat> and it's not because modern modern Lutheranism is so much grounded in Reformation Lutheran theology, but rather that modern Lutheranism is so grounded in running back and forth between these two poles, these two ditches. And so we end up defining ourselves by what we're not, excuse me, or we end up defining ourselves by what we become. Yeah. So we're either not, not Catholic enough or we're too Catholic, you know, Roman, meaning Roman. Right. And if, if you're a Lutheran who attends any congregation regularly, this conversation either has come up, will come up, does come up. That's, you know, you and I've talked about this, that if you put a crucifix on the altar, someone will say, pastor, that seems too Catholic, or mm-hmm. that's really that's really Catholic, Pastor. It's like, yeah, it is Catholic. It's just not Roman, right? <laughs> um, or as you said too, the stripping of the altars analogy is you you lean so hard the other direction that people you're indistinguishable from any Protestant big box mm-hmm. congregation. Yeah, and I actually had this conversation with someone last week who is going to come in and quote unquote check out our congregation this summer because she's not satisfied with the church that she's at right now. And so I went to check out the website and there was no affiliation or designation for what church body this church was a part of, this congregation yeah. was a part of. And had she not told me it was a Lutheran church, I would have had no clue because there's nothing on the website to point me in that direction. Hmm. Well, what what would point you in that direction? I mean, that's the question, right? That um, they state their affiliation at the top of the page. Well, okay. I mean, obviously, well, that's a branding, which right. Well, which that's can what a website is. Yeah, well, it's a, your, your website is branding your congregation. I mean, go to St. John's Lutheran Webster website. We lay out what we believe about Scripture, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. Right. That's what I'm getting at. I mean, what's the right. con- what's the content that you would expect right. to see for a faithful Lutheran church? Well, faithful or unfaithful, it's just, it's branding. And so when you design your website, for example, then you are, you're branding yourself for sure. sure. You tick all the right check boxes, all the right buzzwords, you know, Mm -hmm. liturgical, confessional, historic, I don't know, what other words do you want? Welcoming. Welcoming. (laughs) Inclusive. (laughs) Inclusive, right. It depends. You swing back and forth, right? (laughs) It It reminds me of those fails where the swing is tied to the tree and then it goes out over the river. (laughs) <laughs> and, you're, you know, and there's always somebody who gets on it and swings out over the river and it snaps and ju- they just crash down onto the cliffside. It's like, that's what branding becomes then is just trying to swing far enough out to let go and hit the water. All but things so to often, all people, you know, all things to all people, but we end up crashing <laughs> so <laughs> often. So there were no things to no one. <laughs> exactly. Which we, this was a discussion we had during Bible studies that on the one hand, actually we did. We just had this conversation yesterday that on the one hand, if you say you're conservative, 
in the sense of you're so narrowly focused on Jesus and the gifts. Mm. Conservative in that sense. Conservative in the sense of this is what we are about as a church. This is why we exist. We're about Jesus and giving away the gifts, giving out the gifts. People will say it's too much about Jesus and there's nothing, there's no point. Where, where do I fit in as a Christian? Where are the Christian application sermons? Where mm. is mm. how to live a Christian life, so forth and so on. It's like you're so, you talk about Jesus so much and you're so focused on the sacraments that where's me? But then you go the other side to the what I would call liberal churches, and I mean liberal in the sense of whatever you believe is fine, so long as you believe and come to church. Hmm. And what I see now is you have people who will leave a quote-unquote conservative church for making too much of Jesus, being too narrow in the focus. But now I also have people talking to me about leaving their other church, the liberal church, which is liberal in the sense of whatever you believe is fine with us. And their frustration at, well, I don't really know why I go to church because it doesn't really seem like I have to really believe anything or do anything to be a Christian. So why bother getting up on Sunday and going to church if what I believe and how I live my life is already pleasing to God? I don't really need to go to church. But yet at the base of both those arguments is I need someone to tell me what to do. Mm, Right. To be a Christian. And then the sanctified life, like you pointed out, goes very deep into the Roman Catholic or Protestant understanding of sanctification, which is your primary purpose as a pastor is behavior modification, mm-hmm. moral teaching, giving people lists, giving them something to do. Check and, boxes. And right, check boxes. Deadlines and, and, and all these Yeah, go and sin no more is too ultimate, <laughs> too absolute. So could you kind of parse that out for us? Well, it's also not as descriptive as people want. You know, exactly. They, they want to know exactly what that looks like. You know, how should that look in my life? <laughs> you know? Right. Well, think about... The Ten Commandments, we've discussed this, is that the Ten Commandments are too unconditional. Mm. He just says, you will have no other gods before me, period. He doesn't give us a list. He doesn't give us a description of what that means. He just says, you will not. And then we're left standing saying, okay, but what does that look like? What does that mean? Mm. Like, how do I avoid having other gods? Like, you haven't told me anything other than just, you won't have other gods. You will not misuse my name. Okay, well, how? (laughs) And yeah, that's what the catechisms become then. The catechisms become an excursus an examination or rumination on what does he mean? Mm. You will not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Well, you can't use it for witchcraft or for lying or, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, You will have no other gods. Whatever you fear, love and trust more than any, you know, anything else is your God. And you're like, well, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the point, right? Is if you talk about the first commandment, for example, in relation to enabling and empowering us to not have other gods, you can't control the human heart. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, the law there, well, and and certainly all the Ten Commands, but capital L law brings uh, all things under sin, right? Right, right. (laughs) And drives us uh, away from kind of that self-confidence that we have in the the little law, all of our, what we consider law keeping, right? uh, to to devastate us, you know, say, I don't have anything. I I haven't met, I haven't met God's standard, not, not one, why, one iota, I guess Paul would say. Yeah. Jot or tittle. Jot or tittle. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this is the Romans 3.31 text, too, again, that that through faith we fulfill the whole law, and through faith in Christ we fulfill the whole law. So, therefore, this is something I think we don't emphasize enough because of the influence of this active view of sanctification, which is when you read the Gospels, even Jesus' works are credited to you, Hmm. so that his works are your works through faith. So, it's not like we start with Good Friday and we end with Easter and say, oh, look, Jesus' death, descent into hell, and resurrection are ours by faith. No, he's saying like his entire life is ours through faith. 
from conception through the resurrection, through the ascension, that through faith in Christ, not only is the whole law fulfilled, but all of his works then for us to fulfill the law become ours mm-hmm. through faith. Yeah, it's fitting for us uh, to fulfill all righteousness, right? Says exactly. Yes, exactly. And that then through faith, Jesus's works become our works. So then what is there left for us to do in the way of effecting or working out our sanctification, our holiness, when we've already been declared holy for Jesus's sake? And therefore, in that declaration, all that he has done for us is made ours hmm. through faith. And therefore, circling back around, to be justified is simply to be told, declared to you, Jesus's works, Jesus's death, Jesus's damnation, Jesus's resurrection are all yours through faith. It's finished. And that the true work of God, as John says, is to believe in the Son. Well, that sounds too easy. That's when too Jesus easy. is asked to, to do, yeah, exactly. It's too easy. It's too easy. Believing is too easy. Right. <laughs> And then we turn faith into an activity that we do, which again contradicts the third article of the creed. Hmm. So that's a good jumping in point, maybe, that faith is of the first order and is the highest order, uh, Peter's writes. So faith is of first order and is the highest order, can be confirmed by the terminology that is used in the small catechism, quote, sanctified and kept in the true faith. There is more for us than just being called through the external proclamation of the gospel, being enlightened internally in a proper manner within our heart by means of the correct saving faith, and being recipients of the gifts of the Spirit. From within, in the heart that has been changed by faith, the Holy Spirit saturates our entire being as the one who makes holy, and the one who renews the heart from the inside outward. That is one sentence. I was going to say, that's another German sentence there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That is a nine-line sentence. We're going to have to break this one down. That is remarkable. Uh, Hey, at least I put one one period in that paragraph. Right. Oh, there's the second one. (laughs) So, faith is of the first order, the highest order. There is more for us than just being called through the preaching of the gospel, And, of course, being enlightened internally through the work of the Spirit in our heart, giving us the correct saving faith, recipients of the gifts of the Spirit. And so, within the Holy Spirit changes our heart from a stony heart to a heart of flesh, as the prophet says, because he changes us from unbelief to faith, and then saturates our entire being as the one who makes holy. Yeah, so this is how the the change is affected upon us. Is it it begins with faith, right? That's the first yeah. order gift, uh, and then that changes our heart. And by heart, exactly. he means what? How we um, think, love, consider, how, how we view Christ. Yeah, well, how we view Christ in relation in both faith and love. What well, it's it's the things that we're it's that which we're passionate about or that we love, right? Yes, we're exactly. About heart. So this is the thing then I think that turns us off is that in the in modernity since the Enlightenment we've socially pretty much rejected the language of instrumentality mm, true. that we no longer really talk in language of instrument so therefore the pastor is not an instrument of the gospel that I'm just showing up and the message is already in me like I'm um I'm like Mission Impossible mm-hmm. like you know this this message will self destruct in five seconds and. It's, I'm a recording, essentially. I show up, I deliver the message that's been recorded beforehand for me to say. It's the whole. It's the work of the Holy Spirit working through my mouth, my words, so forth and so on, to communicate the good news about Jesus Christ to the congregation, to the listeners. And this language of instrumentality was really challenged during the Enlightenment 
And the myth of autonomy, the myth of self-law, self-rule becomes super popular. Anarchism becomes very popular, politically speaking, following the Enlightenment in the latter half of the 19th century into the 20th century. And this is really, Friedrich Nietzsche popularized this, what is the purpose of your life? It's not to go out into the world and discover the, you know, discover your place in the world, but rather you're supposed to go out and discover yourself Mm. and name the world in the process of self-discovery. So you don't go into the woods to discover what God has created. You go out into the woods to name what you've discovered. You essentially become your own creator. Right. So the idea is that words are words are powerful. Right. Um, but that we're the ones who hold their power when we right. when we cast them like spells, right? Like spelling. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. That yeah, and that's a great point, because something that we talk about I talk about with our children is that there's no such thing as magic words, even mm-hmm. though your teachers and other people will tell you certain words are magic in the sense of you can't say that word, but you, you know, or you should only say this word to these kinds of people, or you should only use these words when you're doing this thing as if there's special words that are magical. Right. Like if you refer to me by this, this word, whatever classification or pronoun, right. or whatever it is, then that changes me. Like, right. It's like, mm, the, it's just a word. <laughs> it, it right, it's just a word. You if are. you want to call me pastor, that's fine. If you want to call me Donovan, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't call me Mr. Riley, but that's a little bit too, too, uh, too close to home, say. huh? Too, too, too stately. A little too, too st- uh, stiff. Oh, I thought it reminded but, um, you of someone. No, it just, it, that's what you call old people. <laughs> but, uh, it's fine because the word pastor doesn't carry magic power with it. It doesn't imbue me with some sort of magic stuff, the right stuff that I can then be your pastor just because you call me pastor. Any more than you not calling me pastor is somehow taking away from the office or taking away from the power of whatever you've imbued me with or taken try to take away from me. It has nothing to do with that. I'm just the instrument of the gospel. The word of God has power in and of itself because of the Holy Spirit, mm. not because of me. Right. And so there's certain four-letter words that my ancestors used every day. It's common language until the Romans came in and conquered them and forced them to speak Latin or Latinized Anglo-Saxon. And now those words, those four-letter words that used to be completely acceptable and common are now declared to be swear words or cuss words or bad words or naughty words. We can't say them in public because they're not nice. Mm. There was a time not so long ago when they were just normal everyday words that people used. Hmm. And yet culture infringed upon them from somewhere outside of themselves and said, yeah, you can't use those words. Those are vulgar, meaning not Latin, not Greek. The Greeks are the ones who invented the term vulgar, meaning anyone who doesn't speak Greek. Then the Romans just ran with it and went, yeah, anybody who doesn't speak Latin is vulgar. And so this is a vulgar language. And then vulgar became naughty words, bad language. Yeah, what's interesting here then is that, you know, we're talking about words and they come out of your mouth, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's what defiles a man, right? Is that what Jesus said? Yeah, what comes out. Yeah, right. not what, what goes comes, into a man, but what comes out. Right, but we think of things in the opposite way, that it's what we it's what we receive, it's what what's said right. about us, what we eat, what we drink, what that these things are what defile us, that change us mm-hmm. from the yeah. outside in. And then, but what Peter's is talking about is also with our holiness, it's not affected from the outside in, it's affected from right. the inside out. Outside, yeah. It's what's yeah. in your heart. Right. So it's like <clears throat> that, that word of God is, a, what is, how does it describe? Like a sharp two-edged sword, right? And it pierces into the division between bone and marrow. So it get, I mean, it gets to the heart of things, if you like, right? Yeah. It digs deep. Well, it's like our faith is hidden under rough cloth or rough clothing that we tend to judge people by the way that we see them, we perceive them mm. versus their confession. And this of course is because we're not really comfortable in that tension between the simile in the simile 
we're not comfortable in the tension of I'm sinful in my flesh, but I'm righteous according to Christ through faith. Mm. Is that we want to be righteous in ourself. Yeah. And then we want to demonstrate that righteousness through the way we dress, through the way we speak, through the way we behave. And this is the thing. I was having a conversation on Saturday afternoon with um, Tom DeBlass. Uh, ding. This ding. Uh, I just said Tom DeBlass. I hadn't even gotten to the punchline yet. Oh, I know Thanks the reference. For, I know you follow me on Instagram. But uh, Tom DeBlass is a very famous uh, instructor, coach, um, competitor, jiu-jitsu and MMA and he came and did a seminar for us at our academy on Saturday. It was wonderful. But we're talking about this whole thing that when you're born rough, in the sense of like I was born rough, um, he was born rough. He was literally born in blood and born into a situation where he was not at zero. He was at negative ten. Mm-hmm. He was he wasn't he didn't slip through the cracks. He was born in the crack, mm-hmm. much like I was. That you grow up a certain way because you're you grow up rough because the people that are around you are rough. The the world, the the block that you live on, all the people that live there are, are rough. They live hard. They're rough people. They talk very rough and they, they act and behave in a very rough way. And like Tom was saying, you grow up a certain way. You, you come out the other side of it. You talk a certain way. You behave a certain way. And if you don't like that, well, that's tough mm-hmm. because the way that I talk or the way that I behave may be confusing to you, but maybe it's just because you didn't grow up the way that I grew up. Or you've simply managed to figure out how to change the way that you talk and change the way that you behave or the way that you learn to talk and behave growing up. And therefore, you, you, you think you're superior morally to me or spiritually superior because you don't talk that way or act that way. And like you pointed out then, rather than listen for the confession of faith, even if it comes out rough and it's dressed up in rough clothing, that doesn't negate the confession because it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. It's inside and, out again. Right. You know, a person that wears $500 tailored suits and rides around in a chauffeur-driven car may talk a good game, but his heart may be far from God. He may not have any confession of faith. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, what's the show? Peaky Blinders, right? Yeah. Where they come into money. And, right. uh, and, and I don't know so what to then, do with it. Yeah, they have these mansions and they have the houses and the you know, vehicles, the whole deal. And yet they really haven't changed internally. They're still... Right, internally they haven't changed at all. They just, what they did is they saw the way other people, rich people lived, and then they bought what they imagine a person with lots of money would buy. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you said, as soon as there's conflict, out come the guns, out come the beatings, out comes the language, yeah. and they just revert right back to who they are. And that's really the arc of that whole story, that whole show, is that in, even in the end, when he gets appointed to parliament, he's still the same Tommy that he was when he came back from World War One in the yeah. first episode. Was that in Manchester? Is that right? <clears throat> yeah. 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 And, you know, this is uh, one comedian made the comment, Donald Trump is what poor people imagine a rich person is. <laughs> that's true he made like, it when Look poor people imagine it. getting rich it it's basically donald trump marry a supermodel and have like, your hotel superficial and, and always bragging about everything that you have is the best and and so forth and so on and it's it is it's i think it's kind of humorous because when i took a step back and went yeah maybe that's why especially wealthy people people of some affluence or influence have such a big problem with them or mm-hmm. have so much trouble with them is that he, he's kind of this caricature of wealth. Yeah. Brondo, you know? right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and this is the thing then, going back to the language of instrumentality, is that the Holy Spirit chooses and calls saints people that appear to be the farthest from saintliness. This is mm-hmm. Luther's famous statement that the Holy Spirit declares saint to you know people to be saints, sinners to be saints who are the farthest thing from holiness. 
And if we judge by outward appearances, if we judge by the words that come out of their mouth in the, in the sense of like a superficial reading of that, right. a very surface level aesthetic, yeah, we're going to judge those rough characters to be unsanctified or unholy because they don't talk like we talk or dress the way we dress or smell the way we smell or so forth and so on. Their kids don't go to the same school that our kids go to. They don't drive the same kind of car. They don't work at the same kind of job. And it doesn't even matter if you're wealthy. I see this amongst the blue-collar people I serve. Sure. Blue-collar people will basically look down on even poorer blue-collar people, working poor people. Yeah. And even the working poor people will look down on people that are on welfare. It's, so, it's, it's a never-ending cascade. Well, and looking at at uh, forgiveness or, or justification in particular as right. a... Uh, you know, in that kind of tribal way, is like like it sets it sets us into these communities that that uh, have these very narrow walls. I think we've talked right. about that before. You know, and it's like yeah. you know, it, it it actually Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, right? It's right. it's inc- it's actually very inclusive, inclusively yeah. exclusive, right? Because <laughs> there's salvation right. in no one else other than Christ. Yeah, right. It's it's the widest open narrow space you'll ever be a part. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's yeah. it's like the it's the TARDIS essentially. Justification yeah. is the TARDIS. Yeah. It's small There's on the outside. There's only the one door and, in, but then yeah, it opens up. It's, yeah. it's so big on the inside. They all say that. And yeah, and I think that's the problem that we have with it, though, is that that, that allows all the wrong... It's like when I lived in Louisiana, right out of high school, and I worked for my friend's father laying water line. It was all independent contract down there. And so any any road that you turned onto that was paved was definitely white. It was a white neighborhood. It was a white community. Uh, okay. And a lot of times they were gated white communities. If you turn down a road that was that was gravel, that was dirt, it was most definitely a black community or a poor white community. And it was definitely not gated. Unless you're talking like uh, chicken wire to keep the, the chickens inside the fence line. <laughs> Little gates. And that's how you knew, though, just from the geography, just from the topography, you knew what what part of town you were in or what part of the county you were in, whether it was a wealthy or a poor part of the county. And therefore... The people that I worked with, because I worked with all black dudes, um, depending on what neighborhood we were in, they t- they changed the way they talked. When we hmm. would go into a store in a white neighborhood, they would say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, please, thank you. And then when we walked into a black grocery store, then they completely changed. And they talked slang, and they were very comfortable and informal. And me being a white kid from northern Minnesota, I had no idea about what this was like. Like, I'd seen this in, like, TV shows and stuff, but the reality of it was just too much for my brain. I, like, short-circuited. And so I just asked my friend Tom. I'm like, Tom, what's the deal with that? He's like, well, in rural Louisiana in 1990, 91, you could still get hung for talking to a white person the wrong way. Yeah, they recognize the kind of the, the social norms, the external conditions yes. for mm-hmm. for living in or being a part of that community. And so right. then they conform to that, even though inwardly they really haven't changed at all. They're the same person. Right, they exactly. Just, they you just put play, on a mask. You have to play that game. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's a transaction. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll play my part, you play your part, and we'll all get through this together. Yeah, and to the topic of sanctification, I think that's what I was trying to drive at, is that yeah. there's this like... There is an for some. There's this outward game, maybe outside of Lutheranism, especially where you you know you have to play play the game, do the right. whether it's days of obligation if you're Roman or or it's uh, acts of of mercy or kindness if you're if you're right. you know kind of American evangelical. It's funny, actually. Uh, this was actually a whole paragraph of my sermon <laughs> yesterday. This whole thing about because I asked the question because it was the John reading that right now you're in a painful situation, right now you struggle, mm-hmm. you suffer, right. yeah. and yet when I come back. And so they're saying, well, wait, you said for a little while you'll be gone, but then in a little while you'll be here. And and they don't understand what he's talking about. 
And I said, you know, if you think of life as, if you ask the question, is life a game or is life a battle? And how you kind of spin that out is, is life a game that you play? And and then do you play it by your own rules on your own terms? Then what part does God play in that? Is mm. God like a, a child who plays with an insect, like a little boy that pulls the wings off a butterfly? Right. And that your pain and struggling is really that you just haven't learned the rules of the game that God's playing with you. Mm. And that then the purpose of Jesus and the Gospels is to basically explain the rules. And so long as you play by the rules, take up your cross and follow him, suffer God gladly and get to the end of the game, your reward, your trophy, your your medal is eternal life. Yeah. And is that really the gospel then? Well, that's that's always the question to say, look, Jesus can heal, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. We see that in the example of the gospel. Why isn't he healing me? I'm playing exactly. the game, right? Right. I'm, I'm, right. I'm praying to him. I'm asking for healing because I'm sick, right. uh, but he's not giving it to me. So what did I do mm-hmm. wrong? <laughs> no, that's not that's not what this is about, right? Um, and so sometimes you just kind of push it off and just say, "Well, stop praying, don't worry about it," because mm-hmm. eventually you get the resurrection of the body and everything will be perfect. Right. So you, you know, just... well, and then once you figure out the rules, you 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 figure out the rules are well. There's the Baptist game that God's playing with him, the Lutheran game that God's playing with her, yeah, the Roman right. Catholic game, the Bible game, the worship game, and it's all a game. The and you have to figure game, out the rules, right? Right. And whoever plays the by the rules, whoever plays the game the best. The reward is eternal life. My favorite is and the snake hand- handling game. That's the best. The snake handling game, always, always a fun game. Often not to be repeated. <laughs> you get one. You get one shot. <laughs> a lot uh, of people only get one shot at that game. Uh, but when you treat sanctification as a game, then as gamesmanship, even if you don't think of it that way, you still talk in the language of games because once you figure out the rules, then you treat the gospels and Jesus as if he's a chess master. Mm. And he's the Josh Waitskin of sanctification that he's going to teach you how to become a grandmaster at the game called sanctification. And so anyway, and then in the end, you end up uh, basically rising above your competition. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't play the game well, then then the church yeah. is going to withhold right. forgiveness until you get right. your act together. Like, right. Go directly to jail. Do not pass. Go. Do not collect $200. Yeah. So you got to show your moral improvement before. Right. Like, well, wait a minute. Uh, that's upside down, right? <laughs> that mm-hmm. Peter's, that's what Peter's pointing out here is to say, no, right. actually forgiveness comes first. Um, and, well, and it's and also it's, confusing morality with love as if they're mutually uh, that's true. synonymous. Because yeah. a lot of what we do that's love, loving, selfless love, by the way, specifically selfless love, looks immoral, hmm. can actually be immoral. For example, telling a lie to protect someone. Hmm. This is the classic example that we talked about when I was in my undergrad, when I took ethics is if you're a Christian and you hide Jews and the, and the Gestapo come by your house and you lie, are you sinning? And of course the answer is wrong question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the real answer is that's the wrong question because you're not looking at Christ, but yet everybody argues the ethical point because we all thrive in that argument. Well, so much is of it, ethics is is what uh, trying to categorize or actually mm-hmm. create a hierarchy of law and saying, well, the right. higher law there is protecting life over Right, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of, of uh-huh. needs. Yeah. And of course, depending on the individual or the the personality of the group, those that hierarchy changes. Hmm. Cuz it's it self-imposed. Because it ultimately is self-imposed and when you Add that that layer that God marinated to it, especially the commandments. Right, it God gets, frosting, as I heard one theologian. Right, call the God it. frosting. That's right, the God <laughs> frosting of the law. This is the problem the religious leaders have with Jesus all the time: mm-hmm. is that they're all about the frosting and not about the cake. Mm-hmm. It's like cake in a crisis. 
as our friend Maynard sings. And again, as I said to my people, living this way, living by what we've been talking about, works 80% of the time. You can live by this little law 80% of the time. It worked for the religious leaders in 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 Palestine in the second century. It, it's worked for thousands of years. Yeah, it works us. in most cults for a while until, oh, absolutely. until the leader kind of gets, gets goes a little overboard. Well, think about <laughs> how many relationships are driven primarily by guilt. Mm-hmm. A lot. <laughs> Especially as a pastor, you hear about this a lot. And especially in the culture of outrage in which we currently live, guilt is very valuable. It's a very valuable commodity. Mm. It's motivating. Yeah. Very motivating, like I said, both positively and negatively. And yet in the Christian church, as you pointed out, justification by faith alone or through faith alone and Christ alone, it opens up the tent. It broadens the tent so wide. And yet the entrance is so narrow. <laughs> that we think, well, Jesus will keep all the riffraff out. All the rough customers will be kept out. And yet you walk in and go, why Why does it seem like almost everybody here is a rough customer? Yeah. yeah Where pretty, are people that are like me? You know, pretty awesome vision is to have like uh, the woman at the well sitting next to the Pharisee at the wedding banquet of the, of the lamb on the last day. Right, right. right. Like, laughing and clacking glasses. Wait a minute. You two together? Right, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh, be so that's the thing that... that Preters is about is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just preach to you that you're justified, but rather he works in you as his instrument. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And yet, as I pointed out in the sermon, you struggle and you're in pain because God is separating you from everything and everyone that wants to get between you and Jesus. Mm-hmm. And you suffer and are in pain because the world is trying to separate you from everything and anything that gets you to Jesus. Right. And so uh, like, you should like listen to the Buddha, right? And find a way to escape pain right. and suffering, you know, right. use the painkillers right. or uh, take well, the bottle or whatever it is. Right? I'm going to get, I'm going to get burned for this, but the Buddha is right <laughs> in the sense of so much of our pain is caused by our inability to let go of material things that mm. aren't necessary. That bring us pain. Yeah. That, you know, that are that the things that we cling to are the things that bring us pain because we refuse to accept that that car we can't live without or the money that we're striving for, the sacrifices that we've made to get that house or that relationship or that promotion are actually at root the things that cause us pain. Now, what does Jesus say? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, right? Right. Kinds of evil? And this is the thing, and we, Tom DeBlast, we were talking about this, is people who say money can't buy happiness, that's not true. Hmm. Money can totally 100% buy happiness. My children... For a little while anyway, well, right? Well, in the sense of, <clears throat> excuse me, my children don't want for anything. And for me, one definition of success for me personally is that my children don't suffer the way that I suffered growing up, that they don't grow up on welfare. They don't grow up eating government cheese. They don't like spring right now. Summer is for, for me growing up. That was like going to the mall. We went garage sailing. Mm, right. And garage sales were for us going to the mall on weekends because we were so poor that all we could afford by way of like new clothes or new shoes or new furniture or new anything was garage sales. Mm -hmm. And And growing up in a small community, you want to talk about shame-based culture, Mm -hmm. show up for school wearing somebody else's clothes that you bought at a rummage sale, a garage sale, and have them point out to everybody in the hallway that you're wearing their their throwaways and see how uh, well-adjusted you come out the other side of that pure expression. Wow. And so for my kids to not have to grow up that way for me is a big deal. You know, we were just having this conversation about three weeks ago. I said, my children will not look poor. And 
it's something that just kind of came out without me really thinking about it critically. But hmm. that's the strange thing. My wife actually grew up with wealth, but was told while they were growing up that she was poor because her parents were very frugal. Yeah. And she didn't discover that she was wealthy until she met me and discovered what true poverty was by visiting my family. Mm-hmm. And yet when I grew up, we were poor. Economically, we were poor, but also then uh, intellectually, emotionally, we were poor too. Socially, mm-hmm. we were poor. Mm-hmm. And on that account, then you tend to see things in terms of poverty and wealth, and you grow up distrusting wealth. And so for me, uh, one definition of success, a way that money can actually buy happiness is that my children don't look poor. Yeah. And is that materialistic? Yep. Is that selfish? Yep. I mean, I I think there's different ways to scan the cat, though. Uh, You know, like my kids almost exclusively wear Mm hand-me-downs, but they're not in social settings because of other lifestyle choices we've made where where that's going to be brought to bear on them. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's a thing. They're around their cousins. and like I can't teach you because we homeschool our kindergartner. You know, but their cousins recognize their old clothes, which Mm -hmm. that's kind of cool. I mean, they're like, oh, yeah, that was my that was my shirt when I was little, you know. Right. They're like, all right. So then it actually becomes kind of a bridge. But that's. Well, but family is different, too, though, because Mm, at least for my kids, when they get hand-me-downs, that's super cool. My my seven-year-old got my 15-year-old Star Wars sheets. Oh, yeah. He he found them digging through some stuff in the closet. And he's like, whose sheets are these? And we said, well, they're Owens, but he doesn't want them anymore. And Hoshea's like, gimme. Can I? Can I? Yeah. And for, I think, essentially the first time ever, we didn't have to force him to make his bed. Oh, there you go. Nice. And Yeah, you know. There's a life and, hack right there. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and we all have these things, I think, mm. that we look at and determine, not my kids or not my house or not my church. And this can be both either good or evil, ethically speaking, because it can go definitely in the way of evil in the sense of, like, well, I grew up poor, so I'm going to buy my kids the best of everything. My kids are going to have the best, which creates an unrealistic expectation and might end up costing me things like financial stability, health yeah, and well-being, right, right. because I'm spending way outside my means so that my kids appear not poor. <laughs> and yet we are. We're, but some of this is, poor. I mean, you're really just spinning a narrative for them, so a, a way of yeah, um, exactly. understanding themselves. Right. Um, you don't want them to constantly hear this story of like, we're too poor for that. We can't afford that. We don't. So because that that's debilitating in a way, um, it's, there's a realism where you say, well, okay, you're not buying that because we're we're just not going to spend the money Mm -hmm. on it. Well, that's, that's fine. It's a choice. It's not like, I want to buy that for you, but I can't afford it, which, which always puts you then in a position of weakness. And, you know, like you say, poverty that's, that's imposed really. It's just Mm -hmm. like, you don't really need that. Right. Well, and the flip side of that too is, or on the same hand is we've chosen to live very simply Mm, right? and that our definition of success is to, for example, one of my definitions of success is I don't have a boss. Mm. I don't go to board meetings. I don't have to wear a tie to work. And that's something that I've worked at. And yet through the grace of God, I don't wear a tie and I don't really have a quote unquote boss who works in a corner office who's constantly calling me in or we have Monday morning board meetings and these kinds of things. I don't have a, I don't have that dynamic in my life and I don't want that dynamic in my life. Oh, come on. Everybody loves TPS reports. Right? (laughs) I do have a red stapler right behind me. Swing line? Uh, Yes, it is. And uh, so for me, one definition of success is I don't have a boss. I don't wear a tie. I don't work nine to five. Another definition of success is that my children learn that as long as you have your family, as long as you have your faith, and as long as you have that thing that shows you who you are, that that basically is a a reality sifter, a reality sieve, 
that's all you really need. And that each person's in a very neighborly, you know, horiz- uh, horizontal sense, freedom for us, success for us is to live simply. Mm. And for me, that means not having a boss. For me, that means that within our means, we have, we take pride, so to speak, in keeping our house, you know, the upkeep of our house and not dressing extravagantly, but taking care of the things that we have and respecting and appreciating the things that we have and receiving all things as gift ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that my children won't go to school with their glasses taped together. Uh, of course that happened because my son broke his glasses and we had to wait five days. So he went to class, you know, but, um, but he these could are the say kinds, they're on their way, you know, they're on their way. But and like I said, it's just the way that I grew up has driven me in a particular direction. Mm. And, Good, bad, or indifference, not the point. The point is just I'm I'm laying like you said, I'm laying on a narrative that we all have these narratives that drive us, that motivate us, that are our kind of our operating system. Right. And that if we don't take this into account, we can let this get out of whack, vertically speaking, in relation to God. Mm. And start thinking that the way that I appear to God, I can't appear poor to God. I can't show up with my house in disorder on Sunday morning and expect God to bless me, whatever mm. that means to you. Yeah. And that somehow our vertical or our horizontal relationships and our vertical relationships are the same yeah, or run so on parallel tracks. What, what, like taking the external things of life and, and then yeah, internalizing them said, to like right? describe, think, oh, now God can't right. love me because externally right. this is right. how I've been or this is what I look like or whatever. Right. Well, and again, like we were talking about, in relation to my neighbor, the Buddha may have something wise to say. Mm-hmm. such as don't cling to material possessions. They're not the be-all, end-all of your life. Yeah. <clears throat> in relation to Jesus, the Buddha is worthless. Yeah. In fact, he's actually less than worthless. He's satanic. Yeah, because he's pointing, me to a, he's pointing me to a wisdom that isn't Jesus. That's right. And so ultimately, the rules of the game, in a neighborly sense, are constantly in flux. They're constantly changing. They're blurry. They're clearer. But in relation to Jesus, there are no rules of the game. Yeah. Because he broke the game. <laughs> He basically said, there's no more game. I'm the only game in town and you win. Yeah. The way, the truth and the life. Mm-hmm. It's like you, did I send, I didn't even send you my sermon. You just outlined my whole sermon. Well, we did preach the same text. That's true. That doesn't mean the we fact that, preached the The same. fact that you keep hitting on all the high points of my sermon is somewhat troubling. And yet, <laughs> since I send podcast, you my sermon and you'd be like, oh, that's the sermon I preached. Yeah. That's right. The collective subconscious coming out. Well, I mean, hopefully. Right. Yeah. A little bit. We do text a lot. Well, we do text a lot. Too, well, right? no, I mean, you don't want to. De- if they, if oh, you don't want to depart too radically from the text where the yeah, person hears was, your sermon and goes, uh, what was the text? I'm hoping that there'd be some commonality. Yeah. Remember that branding thing we were talking about? That's right. That's right. Are you Unitarian? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. So this is what Peter's is after, though, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just go to work telling you you're justified, mm-hmm. but he goes to work in your heart. Yeah. He makes you holy. He makes you holy, one who makes holy. And how does he make you holy? Through the gospel and the gifts. Mm-hmm. Inward, outward. And inwardly and outwardly, he's renewing you, renewing. So the true faith terminology differentiates the holiness that is put into effect by the spirit of Christ from every human effort to effect change within, inwardly, on the basis of one's own power and strength, enabling, empowering language, and to create itself anew. This is the thing then, right? That we want to play the game by our own rules. Mm-hmm. Because if I set the rules, I control the game. And as I've learned playing games with my 15-year-old, he's not allowed to start a game until we review the rules on the box. 
because he likes to make up rules as he goes. I, I think this was in the rules, and he always wins, not surprisingly. Yeah. Or if you're going to um, play a common game, but, um, you know, it's at a family, friend, whatever, Yeah, mm-hmm. you, just, you have to ask what the house rules are, right? Right. Because exactly. uh, they may have a variation of the rules that they play, right. and you don't know about it, and then you get blindsided by it. <laughs> You know? It's like I told you that story when I was up in Canada at a, I was speaking at a higher things retreat and I was we were sitting at the breakfast table eating and uh, or maybe it was dinner because I think we were having chicken or something it had bones chicken in it for breakfast it was pork chops or something mm-hmm. but anyways it was a meat based substance that had bone and I have two dogs and they don't have any dogs and we were talking and I wasn't paying attention I threw the bone over my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> And one, it was a very small kitchen, so it bounced off the counter back onto the floor. <laughs> and it was one of those things where every like time stopped, and I'm looking at my guest or my hosts, and I'm looking at him, I'm looking at her, and then I realize after the like a split second after I did this, I've just made a horrible mistake, <laughs> and they don't know what I just did. I because I, again, it was just like this reflex thing where I just like we're talking da 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 da. I yeah, just this chucked this bone over my shoulder to all, where my dog normally is. Uh, and all the and blood rushes spend, into your face. Right. And then uh. you spend the next 10 minutes cleaning up slop off the floor. Uh, that's, that's good. That's and you don't realize, yeah, the rules of my house are different because I have dogs. And that it's not polite to throw a bone over your shoulder in someone else's house who doesn't have animals. Well, I didn't realize this about, uh, you know, I'm not a big sports guy, but uh, I like some sports. But Major League Baseball, because they never showed on TV or, or, you know, tell you on the radio. Mm-hmm. that No, they, they have... Before every game, they have the managers, team captains, whatever, they, and they, with the umpires, they go over the rules of that of that field. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that yeah. every field you play in has a different set of yeah. rules. Like yeah. if you hit the top of the fence, it means this, you know, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's the same way with mixed martial arts. Is that before every UFC, the referee goes back into the dressing room and says, "Here's the rules." So then, when they come out, you hear at the beginning of the fight, "Okay, gentlemen, we've gone over the rules. Fight a clean fight. If you want to touch gloves." Wait a minute, I thought like every octagon was the same. (laughs) Right. No, because every state athletic commission has different rules. Ah, which applies then to that. Right. And so, and then you'll hear that, that the unified rules have not been, have not been accepted by this state athletic commission or some of the rules have been accepted, but other rules have not been accepted. So imagine being a fighter and not knowing whether or not if you have three, like if you have your two knees and your hand on the ground, you can't be kicked in the face, but then you go one state over and you can. Hmm. And you got to keep that straight in the midst of conflict. Like you have to remember yeah, in the middle of That's a right. firefight. Oh, now can I do this or can I do this? Or like in baseball, like you said, it's like, do I let this ball go or do I make a, do I you know, like attack the wall to try and snatch it before it goes over? Mm-hmm. It's like, depending on the park, you may not know. And you just gave up a home run. You may have just cost your team the game because you didn't know the rules. That's right. Yeah. And same thing with households. Same thing with churches. And I think this is, you know, maybe this is a key point, too, that we've we've kind of worked ourselves or led ourselves to is there's some current, like my congregation, especially when all the kids are there for Sunday school, there's like 30 plus kids under eight years old in, in the church on Sunday morning. It's loud, man, especially this time of year when it's spring finally here and we've been waiting for spring for so long. <laughs> and they don't want to be inside. <laughs> they don't want to be inside. And they're just bursting at the seams to run and play. And it's loud, right? Now, our congregation then is personality-wise, like we encourage that, mm-hmm. that energy. But there's other congregations that you know too, that they discourage that kind of energy. And if you don't know the rules and you go into a congregation, you and me, we bring a whole tribe with us when we go into a church. Mm. If we don't know the rules of that congregation, people will turn around and give you nasty looks. 
Or you go in and you're constantly shushing your children and then people are like, no, no, it's okay. They, they can act out or they can play or, oh, we have this activity bag or whatever. It's like you're always as a parent, no matter where you go as a parent, you're trying to figure out the rules. And then as a, as a pastor parent, when you try to impose a new set of rules, which are more, actually yes. more lax rules, they yeah. say, oh, that we want you, you know, to bring your children and we don't mind them if they make noise. Right. Not everybody buys into that. <laughs> no, they don't, <laughs> for sure. externally. Yeah, yeah, because you try to bring your house rules into the church. And there's, a, I mean, there's a whole set of unspoken rules. I stumbled on mm-hmm. one. Um, I got blindsided yesterday and it was, you know, pastor, I can't even remember which one it was. We always sing Jesus Christ is risen today is the first hymn on Easter. And you sang Christ the Lord is risen today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Like, That's right. Um, you all, uh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I can say. Like, right. sorry, I yeah. didn't know. <laughs> right. I, I went back and looked. I think I, I must've just got mixed up. I got the two mixed right. up. Don't you just feel like asking, what's your end game here? Like, I don't know. What's your end game with this, with this statement? I don't even know where to go with this. I, yeah. <laughs> like, you like the hymn, I guess. But, but it's like, this is what right. we always do. I'm like, okay, I guess. <laughs> right, <fine>. exactly. <laughs> you don't know the rules of the game, man. <sighs> it's, it's a transaction. You do for me, I do for you. Was there something wrong with the hymn that we sang? I mean, <laughs> right. uh, I don't even know. Ugh. So true faith terminology differentiates the holiness that the Holy Spirit works in us through uh, justification, through the declaration of Christ, uh, crucified and risen for us versus one's own power and strength, which we try. And like I said, in a Nietzschean way, we try to rediscover and recreate ourselves every day. Yeah. And I like this idea that he's distinguishing, or Luther is distinguishing the catechism between true faith and then other faith. I mean, yeah. that's what, when we're describing these, you know, social norms and rules, I mean, in a right. way, they're a faith, they're a belief set. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not the true right. faith. <laughs> right. No, 100%. And this is, yeah, well, save the BGJ as a religion conversation for a second from now, but um, there are lots of religion. Well, there's lots of religions running around and mm-hmm. religions in the sense of what are you doing to earn your way forward? Yeah, that's right. And whatever you put into it, you earn something back from it. Mm-hmm. And to so the less you invest group to be a part of this yeah, community, whatever it is, yeah. right. To earn the belt, to earn the trophy, to earn the uh, affirmation, to earn the accolades, the wealth, the fame, the power, whatever it might be that you're striving for just to be a better person. Mm-hmm. In general. So in the large catechism, Luther barely mentions this frontal assault on the works righteousness that is rooted in the late medieval ages with its attempt to sanctify the self. At, the, at this point, he makes more of the term sanctification that came down from, through tradition, taking it in the sense that would convey what the proper biblical term would convey during the Middle Ages as one would strive for righteousness. He, meaning Luther, uses this very concept to combat an antinomianism that seeks freedom from all demands, which is interesting in the sense of, I I don't, there is no such thing as true antinomianism. Let's just put that out there again for everybody to hear if we haven't said it enough. There's no such thing as true antinomianism because this idea, and this is what it is, it's an ideology that seeks to be free from all demands. And as you and I have been talking about for the last almost hour, there are rules to every relationship. Yep. Whether they're communicated or not, whether they're implicit or explicit, there are rules, man. And if life is all about learning the rules of the game so that you can have a quote-unquote good relationship or a good job or or whatever it may be, good standing in your community or yeah. a good Christian, there are rules. The only difference really is that we don't suffer, I don't think, from antinomianism. We suffer from autonomianism or anomianism. Mm. In the sense of we either want to be a law unto ourself, we'll right. interpret the Ten Commandments for you, or we want to be anomian, we want to be lawless. Right. And 
Which is kind of like uh, atheism, right? Right. Atheists are the most religious people you'll meet. Exactly. Yeah. They're religiously, uh, their creed is there is no God. <laughs> right. Right. And that I have friends who are atheists who spend way more time thinking about God than I do. <laughs> way more time. Every time that we, we hook back up, they're asking me questions I'm like, dude. How how often do you how much time do you spend thinking about this stuff? <laughs> like I don't even think about this this much. Um, of course, that's because I believe in God, so I don't really have to think about it. I just have to. Right. <laughs> it's like I'm going in the same direction all the time. It's like where's Jesus? It does. It but, requires a lot of effort and strength to deny uh, <laughs> deny what what you've been given. Basically, anything really is to live in the negatives. Yeah. To to define yourself by what you are not requires. Well, in the one sense, you can be super lazy. Mm-hmm. And just simply dismiss everything that doesn't make you feel good. Right. Or, yeah, you can go to great lengths, like a Sam Harris, for example, or a Christopher Hitchens, and and go deep into the subject of God and religion and belief and so forth. Um, it just depends on, again, what what your investment is worth to you right. in this area and what's, what drives and motivates that. Well, it's this, and it's the same with antinomianism. I mean, yeah, you know, to or to at least make the argument that there is no law. I mean, that requires. Well, but that's not really what antinomianism is, because anti means to stand in front of. Ah, yeah. And so, a true antinomian is simply seeking to interpret the law. I mean, the religious leaders were antinomians mm-hmm. because they're claiming that the the author of the law is lawless. And a true antinomian isn't one who does not have any law or says that we are completely free from all the law's demands, even though this is the, the, the definition he's working with here. But in the present tense, at least, antinomianism is, I know the law better than you do, and I'll interpret it for you. Yeah, you're rejecting my law. Or you're standing in front of my law, the law that right. I'd like to impose. Right. And, and by the way, my law is God's law. They're interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And since I'm spiritually, morally superior to you i'm more holy than you are my interpretation is more righter than yours is and therefore you must follow my interpretation otherwise you're not holy you're not sanctified it makes me wonder you know how many folks actually read the sermon on the mountain and you know and know it's about jesus yeah and and jesus the way that he relates the law is to say i mean he ends that that idea that the law is about you know, check boxes or, or lists or yeah. uh, even the possibility of keeping it. I mean, that's the aspect of it, right? The full severity of the law is brought to bear. Right. Um, well, and this is the thing too, is when Jesus is asked, what is the first and chief command? Mm, yeah. Right. He asked the question, well, or I'm sorry, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get into heaven? And Jesus simply asked the lawyer the question, well, what's the first and chief command? Love God. And then after that, love your neighbors yourself. And we talked about this in the uh, previous episode too, is, in the Peter's episode, that when we talk about obedience, when we talk about holiness and sanctification, we kind of just lump them together and we leave out love. <laughs> and if we do bring love back in, it's, well, I'm trying to love you, but you won't let me mm. because you're not being obedient. <laughs> you're not doing what I want you to do. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Versus, well, if your love is focused entirely on Christ crucified for you, if your love is focused entirely on his works that are yours through faith, it's for lack of a better term, it's a lot easier to love your neighbors yourself when you're focused on Jesus, not on how much you love God mm. through your acts and how you demonstrate that the God through your acts of obedience. Mm. And therefore, whether or not your neighbor is worthy of love and how much love your neighbor is worth, worthy of, depending on their behavior. It's like, I can pity you for being in the ditch or in the gutter, but once I lift you out of the gutter, I better not ever find you in the gutter again. This is Peter's whole question of absolution. Is like, how many times must I forgive my my the person who sins against me? 
And Jesus is like, yeah, the essentially never. Uh, There's wrong. never enough times. Right. <laughs> forgiveness is not governed by the law. Right. And yet we play forgiveness by the rules of the game, too. Seven times, 77 times, how many times? Mm. It's like we talked about in Bible study in relation to liturgy on Easter morning when I come in and I pronounce absolution without allowing them to make that first confession. And the people get upset and I'll say, well, yeah, but you, we confessed our sins at six other points during the liturgy. We confessed our sins in the, in this opening hymn. We confessed our sins all over the place. You've been constantly receiving absolution after the the confession of sins. What is it about this one confession that has to be the only way in which you get absolution i gotta get my i gotta get my uh, transaction in right, right because the first confession is obviously the most valuable one because it's number one <laughs> and so of of the seven or six or five or 20 times that we confess our sins throughout the divine service this one is the best one yeah and then that's sometimes why you will hear like a criticism of lutheran hymns that that get you back to confessing and, and being repentant yeah. right? right because it's like well we already did that <laughs> we right. did that at the beginning why do we need to do that again you know and if you run confession and forgiveness in the way of the rules of the game, you got to play the game the right way. Mm-hmm. Then, once again, you're not confessing because you're forgiven, but rather you're confessing so that you can be forgiven. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is the trophy you get for playing the rules, playing by the rules. Yeah, It's like a cookie. Or a carrot. Or a carrot. And then, of course, people can't confess their true sin to you because of the value of the sin to either devalue the absolution or raise the value of the absolution. And so we can say things in general about sin. We can confess our sins in general, but we can't confess them, excuse me, specifically. Yeah. Because it's not Jesus that we're, that we're being pointed to. It's the quality of our confession, the perfection, the purity, the sincerity of our confession. Well, we've heard it both ways, right? Um, some will say, eh, you know, I didn't come to you f- for absolution because it's, no big, it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, right. And then you hear the other side too. Oh, it was so it was, I was just so worried about you know, how right. you would respond to it because it's such a big deal. And you're like, that's not the point, right? Yeah. You know, of absolution, it's, it's to receive it, not... It is a passive, it's yeah. a passive righteousness and therefore a passive holiness. The holiness is simply the confession that Jesus makes me holy and I have either taken both eyes or one eye off of Jesus and right. focused on the things that are not of Jesus and then tried to righteous myself or sanctify myself or justify myself or recreate myself. Right. And that's why we, we feel this like desperate need to categorize our, the severity right. of our sin before God. And, right. and indeed, sins have different severity before our neighbor, right? Effect right. upon them. And the antinomian card is one way that we play the game. Mm, yeah. Or the autonomian or the anomian card, as it were, that we try and categorize each person by their, you know, again, defining ourselves by what we are not. And asking this, the question, well, I know that you, you claim that we're free from all the law's demands, but in actual fact, in actual practice, is that really true? Hmm. Is that, have you ever met anyone who is actually free from the demands of the law? I mean, really, in, in, in actual fact, have you? Because I haven't. Mm-mm. It may be an internal conversation they're having with themselves, so it may not seem it, and their words may be, you know, may be trying to contradict what they're feeling in their heart. But guess what? Every time you make a comment about sanctification, you aren't sanctified, or you aren't working out your holiness, or you're not being obedient. The person who's saying that is really saying, "I, me, my." They're trying to deflect that. They're trying to make you the scapegoat. They're trying to make you their Jesus that you got to carry this weight of their sin that they wrestle with internally for them. Mm. And so the you, you, you of the accusation is really the me, me, me confession. Right. It's directed a, com- it's at a another. comparison game 
uh, with an attempt to kind of weigh the scale against you right. in order to elevate your, you know, right. yourself. Right. And thread jacking, we called it in the last podcast. It's thread jacking. Oh, yes. Thread jacking. That's right. <laughs> it's, that's all it is. It's you, 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 you. Like you said, Pastor, we didn't sing the right hymn. Uh, okay. <laughs> what are you saying? Like, really, what are you really trying to say here? I mean, that may you be just the statement. That hymn? Sure. Okay. Well, right. I'll sing it next week, you know? <laughs> right. But, but really, what is it about that hymn or the position of that hymn within the divine service that causes you to come to me and voice your concern <laughs> or your complaint? Like, what's the motivator here? I really want to know because this is fascinating. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Like, we take ourselves very seriously. Yeah. Well, of course, we must take ourselves seriously. This is a matter of salvation. Mm. Which, as Peter points out, when you read the explanation of the third article of the Creed in the Catechism, it is a frontal assault on the works righteousness of the Middle Ages. Mm. Here's the thing, though. The works righteousness of the Middle Ages or modern Protestant works righteousness is antinomianism because it won't let God's word of law simply be unconditional. Yeah. It tries to condition it and make it doable. Mm. Do little vitamins, you know, doable doses of the law mm. versus, and, and as Ken Corby, Dr. Norman Nagel and others, Dr. Saze uh, have said, you can't, if you don't preach the, the gospel in all of its fullness, you can't preach the law in all of its fullness. Mm-hmm. And really what we're not what we're talking about is not people who want to whittle the law down into doable doses. It's that they reject the gospel. And therefore they must they must tame the law because the 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 safety valve that releases the pressure on the law's accusation is the gospel. Hmm. And so once you've rejected the gospel, you have no outlet, you have no valve to open up to release that pressure. And it'll the law will kill you. Yeah, so it's either it's either like a suicidal thought, or right. or it's the flip side. We just have to we right. just have to release the law somehow, you know. Exactly, and this is Paul's whole point, and you know, when he writes to Timothy about the law being preached and unlawfully, mm. is that we often want to say, "Well, if I'm doing it lawfully, then yeah." And I was like, "No, that's not the point of what Paul's trying to make here." Paul is basically making the point is that nobody actually does this lawfully. Mm-hmm. We all do it for selfish motivations in the end because we're trying to avoid hell. We're trying to avoid the punishment. We want the trophy. And when we think of righteousness and sanctification, for example, as things that we have to do, we have to affect our righteousness, we have to affect our sanctification, we have to do it, well then, what's the purpose of the gospel? What's the purpose of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Other than just to be a role model. Well, and that's really the challenge as a Christian preacher is that we want to use God's word by nature. We want to do this, not not by mm-hmm. faith to like affect some sort right. of change upon individuals right. or a congregation or the whole Christian church. And, right. and it's like, let's not, you can't manipulate God's word in such a, I mean, you can actually manipulate it to, to um, have some kind of effect that you're looking for. I mean, Creflo Dollar does that, right? Yeah. Um, he wants a big, he wants his jet. So he uses, uses God's word, so to speak, quotes it here and there, you know, to yeah. affect this change that he's trying to impart. But, um, <laughs> but it's not God's work then. Right. Mm-hmm. It's our exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is this has been an interesting exercise for myself. I was telling you off air that I threw out the way that I prepare sermons, mm. uh, and I've started over from scratch essentially. So, kind of what I've fallen back on all my tricks and tropes, I've thrown all that out and I've started from scratch. And one of the things we talked about in Bible study in to for me to basically prepare the landing strip for the sermon was ninety percent of the sermon is going to be law, mm-hmm. and at the last second, I'm going to pull out of this dive and hit you with the gospel. And I explained, if you ask me to preach a law sermon, I think we talked about this in the last podcast too. If you ask me to preach a law sermon, I don't need to prep. Mm, I need very little prep time. 
I've been doing this long enough that I don't need a lot of prep to preach the gospel either, but that's only because I'm a one-note Johnny. It's Jesus and the gifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you if you really want me to preach a good law sermon, I'm I can nail a good law sermon. The question for me as the preacher then is, how does the law manifest itself in the Christian's life mm-hmm. in such a way that they are cut loose from the first commandment, that the fear, love, and trust of God has been cut loose in such a way by fear of something that's not God or, or love of something that's not God or trust of something that's not God. And really, for me as the preacher then, I don't really just want to say, you break the law. Rather, I want to exposit for them the way in which that happens in actual fact in their life yeah, and to drill down into the pain and struggle of life to say in the end, the reason that you're in pain and you struggle, the reason that you hurt other people is because on the one hand, and I used Luther's analogy actually this kind of at the conclusion was Christians are like a man standing on the roof of a house and below him inside the house is a party going on and they're laughing and they're singing and they're clanking glasses together and they're having a great old time. And you want to go back down in the house and join the party. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're straining upward toward heaven in the analogy. And therefore, a Christian is always caught between two places at the same time. He wants to be with Christ in the resurrection, but he wants to go back to his friends and family. Mm-hmm. And that the pain then that we struggle through and the pain that we cause others and inflict upon others is that reality. We want to be with Jesus, but we also kind of want to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's not one or the other, it's both and. And... To push the analogy, we often fall off the roof and break our leg. <laughs> yeah. And eventually we'll break our neck. Well, and there, in particular, you've broken loose of your baptism, right? Which right. says, exactly. actually, the promise of heaven is yours, right? right. And, that, and that's for sure. I mean, you are a child of God even now. Uh, that's not something that's to come. That's already yours today. So, right. in a. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in a, to in a live as Christ, to die as gain. Is yeah. So, like in a colloquial sense, it's just like, don't worry about it. You know, right. um, be. You know, be Christ to your neighbor and right. live in love toward one another because the salvation thing's in the bag already. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's really what I want to drive at too with this different direction from my sermons is this whole to live as Christ, to die as gain and what that looks like in the Christian life, mm-hmm. in the yeah. Christian's life. That is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life I live, I live through faith mm-hmm. in the one who sacrificed himself for me. That how to use your baptism, for example, in the context of vocation is a part of this, how Jesus's works are your works through faith. Yeah. And then how that manifests itself in your life, in life, that Jesus is your life. Yeah. Maybe and spin out to, you know, what, what the blessing of the sacrament of the altar is. Exactly. The, the sacrament doesn't empower and enable you to get up from the railing and then go out into the world and kick butt for Jesus. Mm. But rather, this is the way in which the spirit refocuses you, directs you back to the true faith and true love. That it's all Jesus. Yeah. And not, and not and not just a, like a casual you know meal for for uh, people gathered together either. I mean, it's, right? Exactly. That yeah. This isn't your refilling station. <laughs> your battery's not low on your Tesla, and we just got to plug in for forty five minutes, and then we'll send you back out on the road. Right. Because like a Tesla, you're not going to get very far <laughs> on <Where>? one charge. <laughs> Although they are getting better. They are but, getting better. Yes. But nonetheless, it's how does the law. How does the law break loose in a person's life? How does the law manifest itself in a person's life, whether it's first use, second use, third use? Mm-hmm. And then likewise, wh- what does Christ's work then? What, how does Christ's work for you manifest itself in your life? How does the Spirit's work d- direct you back to true faith and true love, which is always Jesus? Yeah. Because God is love and Jesus is God, therefore Jesus is love. And our faith is what? Jesus' faithfulness bestowed upon us through the work of the Spirit. Again, all passive stuff. 
Mm. We're just passive. We just receive it. Yeah, a, a holy treasure, right? To be uh, yes stored yes. up, if you like. Right. You know, hold a on. Man to who it. discovers a pearl in a field. Mm-hmm. So. Middle Ages, antinomianism, freedom from all demands. Luther goes, ha, that's impossible. And now a quote from Luther. For this type of Christ would be worthless and empty to have died for sinners of the type that do not wish to give up sinning or give up on sinning and to lead a new life after their sins have been forgiven. Hmm. True faith in Christ authenticates itself precisely by the way it wages the relentless battle against sin, admittedly not by means of one's own power, but solely through a constant return to Christ's offering. There's your sacramental direction. As Luther makes clear when discussing baptism. And this is something that uh, a friend of mine talks about, Steve Paulson, um, is that really what Luther makes is a sacramental reversal. It's not about our offering to God and then God showers us with his blessings, but rather it's God's offering to us. And then we shower him with our praise and thanksgiving. Is that really what Luther does at the altar is he reverses the entire direction of Christian worship from that of the late Middle Ages and modern Protestantism. So the so the the body and blood come down and are given, <laughs> rather, rather yes, rather than us offering up our body and blood, right? Which, yeah. by the way, is why we spiritually eat and drink Jesus's body because if we're offering ourselves up as a sacrifice, we don't need Jesus's actual body and blood to be here for us. Mm-hmm. Our body just, and blood is enough. Thank you very much. We can do that uh, that whole what <laughs> spiritual relocation? <laughs> yeah, right, that. right. Like, oh, I'm Get up your in spiritual now. metal detector out and. <laughs> So true faith in Christ authenticates itself by waging a relentless battle against sin, not by one's own power, though, but solely through a constant return of Christ's offering. And this is something that Pastor Borgart and I have talked about extensively over the years is if you want to do more good works, you don't need more sermons about good works. You need more forgiveness and you need more body and blood. Mm, yeah. Because good works flow from the gospel, not from the law. Yeah. Truly good works, true good godly works flow out of the gospel, not from the law. And therefore, if you want to do God good works, if you do want to do godly works, if you want to be sanctified, you don't need more sermons on sanctification. What you need is more sermons on Christ <laughs> who works in and through you in a specific way, baptismally. So it's so it's interesting because somebody's saying, I want to do more good works. That's actually a way of admitting sin. Yeah, it is, for right? sure. You're just saying, right. I'm, I'm not who... I'm not who I, I want to be or who I think Christ would have me be, um, who God made me to be, however that however you want to say well, that. And interesting that in all things, God works these things for good mm-hmm. for those who, who love him. And that in a Roman sense then, in Paul's letter to the Romans, where he talks about this, do I love God? Yes. And yet, how can I say that I love God when I constantly sin against God in a Roman 7 sense? Because the uh, working you know, good for those who love God in a, doxolog- a doxological sense, kind of comes after that whole, the good I want to do, I don't do. <laughs> and the evil that I don't want to do, I do. It's like, how can those two things go together? How can I say that I love God if I work tirelessly against him? And the answer is, well, then it must not be something that comes from me. Mm, yeah, The love that I have for God must not be something that is generated by me. For, and it comes out of my heart, but rather it's generated in me through the work of the Spirit. Because this is Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. So if I love God, it's because he first loved us, which I think is in 1 John mm. chapter 4, <laughs> somewhere. Maybe, maybe it's around there somewhere. Yeah, look it up, kids. You'll find it. Look it up, kids. Go play in your Bible. <laughs> Here's a Bible. Go play in the street. Um, but rather that if we love God, if we have faith in God, that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And yeah. therefore, we can't even claim that it's our faith or that it's our love. So even that kind of desperate call with David in the psalm that we 
you know, mm-hmm. usually use offertory, creating me a clean heart. Exactly. Right? Renew a right, renew spirit, a right in me. spirit within me. That, exactly. That's actually the cry of faith. It's coming. Yes. That's a fruit of the gospel coming out of the, out of the preaching right. of the word. Right. And that's why we pray in the post-communion collect, increase faith, uh, faith toward you and fervent love toward one another. Mm-hmm. Is that what is the purpose of the sacrament? Well, to increase faith in Christ and increase love toward one another. That, uh, again, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you're doing your good works for God, you're just as confused as an atheist mm-hmm. when it comes to this matter. In fact, the atheist is probably better educated and more knowledgeable about the hypocrisy of your good works at that point, because the atheist will at least point out, why does God need your money? Yeah. Well, and the atheist will probably point out um, where your good works have fallen short, too. They'll recognize. Exactly. Very not, quickly. We're not doing it. You're not doing enough. You're not doing it well enough. Right. Um, you know, you're not being attentive to this or that, right. that you should be. And so I think to summarize it all up then, sanctification, a lot of sanctification talk is a lot of baptism talk. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of justification talk. It's a lot of Jesus talk. It should be. It, well, if it's, if it's true, again, if it's true sanctification, if it's true holiness in the way of the third article of the creed and the catechism, then a lot of sanctification talk has to be a lot of talk of the Holy Spirit and the gifts, the gospel and the gifts. Because that's what effects. That's how the Holy Spirit works out. Your holiness declares you holy. And that's what he jumps into then. The Spirit sanctifies us by means of the daily forgiveness of one's offenses. There it is. That I am daily and abundantly forgiven all my sins. I like the word abundant more than rich. It's just, I like the 1941-42 version. Abundant. He daily and abundantly forgives me my sins and the sins of all believers. Yeah, that's like the cup the, overflowing idea. Right, exactly. It's not a theology of scarcity. It's a theology of abundance. Mm-hmm. It's flood language. How many sins does he forgive? All of them. <laughs> How often? Every time. Every time, all day, daily. Mm-hmm. So the Spirit makes us holy by means of forgiveness every day, which is baptismal talk then in the, in the way of the catechism too, that we, you know, we are daily through contrition and repentance put to death and raised to new life, regenerated and renewed. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, you know, teaching people how to use their baptism. You know, are preaching mm-hmm. that. Uh, and Luther gives that in, in the daily prayers, right? Right. He said, yeah. you make the sign of the cross. And uh, this was in my catechesis yesterday. Um, you know, somebody who had never heard that Luther in the catechism instructs us to make the sign of the cross. Well, I'm like, it's not because it's Roman or he's trying to restore some ancient practice or something like right. that. It's because that's the, the sign that was put on you in your baptism. Right. Because <laughs> then right. you say the name that was put on you in your baptism, right? right? In the name of the right. Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you pray to keep, be kept from sin, to rise to new life in Christ, right? And then at yeah. the end of the day, you say, uh, actually bury old Adam again, right? Forgive me for all yeah. my sins that I've done wrong yeah. and uh, so that I can sleep well. Right. So the Spirit sanctifies us by means of forgiveness mm-hmm. and the forgiveness is affected in us by a constant return to our baptism. We are being constantly shepherded back to our baptisms because we don't wander away into our baptism. We wander away into our own imaginings. Mm-hmm. Again, the, the daily attempt to discover for ourselves the meaning of life, the universe and everything. Or to find a way to forgive ourselves. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's possible. <laughs> so, Peters continues, crawling back constantly when returning to our baptism, it causes sanctified actions to sprout and grow. Again, the language of, orga- the orga- language of organics, mm-hmm. which Luther constantly uses too. Agriculture, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, again, we may water it, we may plant it, but God is alone gives the growth. So crawling back constantly when returning to our baptism causes sanctified actions to sprout and grow, and one, quote-unquote, improves daily. 
From within one's own being, one presses on toward the eschatological time when the entire human nature will be made new. Hmm. That's eschatological for you playing the home game, but eschatological sounds like a book of bathroom humor for your Kindle. <laughs> yeah. Scatological. That's nice. So one improves, that's a quote unquote, one improves daily, but improves in the sense of dying to oneself and being made alive to Christ through faith. So let's, again, let's not get this confused and think, oh, there's our opening. We have to improve daily. No, he doesn't say you have to. He says you will. (laughs) Why? Because you will constantly be crawling back to your baptism. And therefore, in relation to your baptism, you will sprout and grow. Your actions will sprout and grow and you will improve daily. So from unbelief to faith, from from self-reliance to complete dependence upon God. You will want to be forgiven more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. You don't get better in the sense of, I need to go to confession less, but rather in relation to Jesus, in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit, you will daily, what? It will be revealed to you how much more time you need to focus on your baptism and how much more you need to be at the Lord's table, how much more you need to focus on Christ and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, is that when you focus on the mercy of God and Jesus Christ for you, you kind of want to show it to other people. Right. And the more that the Spirit reveals to you the way in which Jesus has shows grace toward people who are rough, who don't look like they deserve it or sound like they deserve it, it really does crack you open, I think. Or maybe it makes you hard. Maybe it makes you harder because you look at other people and go, yeah, that's too far. Hmm. Like you can forgive these people, but those people, that's that's too far. It's going too far. And so we're gonna we're gonna basically add another uh, layer of sheetrock and and masonry to thicken the walls. Yeah, I think it's one of the in- I think it's one of the interesting reasons why um, uh, the church does seem to get older, or it has gotten older. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that that's necessarily true. I think that's probably been the case we just haven't recognized it quite as much and that you know that some, some people are in church when they're older because they're bored maybe <laughs> you know sure. they've got nothing better to do on sunday morning yeah. but uh, at least in my in my experience uh it's because of this what how luther says it right that they've improved daily i mean they recognize this desperate need and they're more faithful in attendance and mm-hmm. worship and well, their- one, the baby boomers are the largest generation. Well, wow, that's true too. There's a lot of people. Two, they grew up immigrant children for the most part. Mm. Third, second, third, fourth generation immigrant children. The immigrants brought their faith with them. They came over here. Lutherans brought their catechism, their hymnal, their Bible, mm. or whatever it may be. And I think two, we've talked about this extensively. Um, you and I don't have to want for food. We can just go to our refrigerator and open it up. We don't really want for anything, which is why we're like rats now devouring each other. Mm. Like we're just bored. And when you get bored, you just start devouring each other for sport. It's a hobby. And our our grandparents and their parents' generation, they had that was a hard scrabble life for yeah. the most part. Not many people were born into affluence. Not many people were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They had to work just to survive. Yeah. And through their hard work and through what they did in the first and second world war and what they did to bring about change in society we get to reap the benefits of that we get to eat the fruit of that but the problem now is we've gotten fat on it hmm. and we don't want to be we don't want to work essentially yeah. well that's the history of the kings too though right of course we yeah you read first and second kings first and second chronicles solomon's a spoiled brat who destroyed his father's kingdom yep i mean let's be honest the wisdom that god gave him he used to destroy his father's legacy and everything that had been done before that up to that yeah. point because he's a spoiled brat and the chronicler is careful to say um that solomon he, he omits that solomon died 
and went to be with his fathers. Unlike all yeah, the right. others, Solomon right, isn't exactly. given that. And he's so wise, and yet he dies yeah. apparently in unbelief. <laughs> right. Well, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, that all wisdom puffs up or all knowledge puffs up. Mm. Oh, no, all men have knowledge, right? But all, but all knowledge puffs up. Is that we have to be super careful. And I think that's such a great sentence that we need to meditate on more, that theology is knowledge, philosophy is knowledge, living life and, and going through experiences gives you knowledge about how to live in life in general and the world in general. But you can use that to become proud and arrogant. And my son and I were just talking about this the other day, that people that are overly proud and need people to see their accomplishments, need to be affirmed, are really insecure, fearful people. Yeah. That's why they're proud. I said people that aren't proud, people that are humble, are very secure people. And that's why they can they can basically say, I'm not, I'm not important. I'm not I'm of no importance here. You're more important right now. Let's focus on you and your needs. Only a person that is secure and healthy can actually affect that and be sincere about it. Because a person who's unhealthy and, and insecure will project pride out because it's just fear. It's just fear being projected outward in the form of a defense. Like I'm barking at, right. at someone walking by the fence so they don't see how really afraid I am. This is how we've always done things. In other words, this is we stopped really thinking about it yeah. <laughs> and being critical of ourselves and our own practice. Right. And we, we just put it all on, on our history and our legacy. And right. We, and so, yeah, our grandparents, the boomers or our parents who are the boomers, they worked really hard to build up the church. They mm-hmm. did. Let's not discredit what they did to build up the physical structure and the infrastructure of the church, mm-hmm. the church body, the local church. All the institutions attached to it the, as well. Again, the institutions of the church that their grandparents may have gone to church in a sod hut out on the prairie. Once a year, uh, twice a year. Once a, yeah. Yeah, they may have, yeah, they might have had communion and baptisms once a year when a, pre, when a pastor came around or a priest came around. Mm-hmm. Their parents may have grown up in a, some small country church, and it was very local and very community-based. And then after the war, they moved to the city and got a job at a factory or a job at an office building, or they went to, they went to college and got a degree. And everything changed for them. And they worked really hard to build a life for themselves and their families. And like I said, we reap the benefit of that. It's like when someone says, well, when I was growing up, we didn't have air conditioning. Well, yeah, that's be, that's why your kid invented the air conditioner. <laughs> like, he grew up and went, this is stupid. I'm going to invent a way to make the house cool when it's 100% humidity in the summertime. That's a great thing in and of itself. But now we become so comfortable <laughs> that we want the whole earth air conditioned. Hmm. We want a cloud seed and do all this other stuff, right? Is And we want somebody else to do it for us. Like golf courses in Phoenix. Right, exactly. <laughs> that And with our faith, then we do this. That I, I had this conversation at a voters meeting yesterday when I talked about how I teach confirmation and why it's four years and so forth. And I basically laid out what I laid out for the confirmands. I said, when you were growing up, Everybody you knew was a Christian hmm. in my community. Everybody went to church on Sunday. If if you were a, a, a house thief, Sunday was the jackpot because you knew everybody was at church and they left their right. houses unlocked. Right. I said, when I asked my confirmands, how many kids in your class are Christian? They actually looked to the left and to the right and went, everybody on the couch with me who's in my class is a Christian. Yeah. Meaning the three people on the couch were the only people that they could think of in their whole classroom that are Christians wow. that actually are asked the question, why do you go to church on Sunday? Or why are you a Christian? Or what do you people do at, you know, what do you guys do on Christmas at your church that you go there instead of X, Y, and Z? So the way that I teach confirmation now, it can't be the way that their grandparents were taught confirmation because the world that they're encountering is completely different. 
Yeah. And ask the eighth graders next year, how many of them are still Christian? Right, exactly. And so, yeah, their grandparents have those traditions that they built up. They have these institutions that they built up. And now that we're really on the, on the other side of Christendom, they are still thinking as if the church is, is in this Christendom model. And yet their kids and their grandkids are realizing, oh, wait, this is not Christendom. Mm. And so we can't, we can't, run our institutions in the way of Christendom anymore. We can't run our local church in the way of Christendom anymore. We can't fall back on the same assumptions. We can't fall back on the same tropes and tricks that we've used for the past 40 or 50 years. They don't work anymore because one, people are leaving, which is why our churches are declining. And two, people are not coming in. And the bitter pill, and you and I have talked about this in relation to a lot of work that I do with the LWML in our district is I have to be the guy that shows up and says, I can't tell you, there's no plan, there's no recipe, there's no checklist for how to get young people to come to church. All I can tell you is, according to our catechism, the reason that people aren't coming is because we're not preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. And it's bitter in the sense of, we don't want to admit that we're not preaching the gospel or that we're not allowing it to predominate our preaching and our teaching and that something else is predominating. Mm -hmm. And yet the only way for the church to actually live is the gospel. (laughs) And so it's not a bad thing. And yet when we hear that, that we don't let the gospel predominate, we tend to take that as a negative. Right. Like, I'm Accusation, criticizing you. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, you've ruined the church and it's your fault. It's like, no, I'm not blaming anybody. What I'm saying is the institution and institutionality took over. Well, and back to that story of, you know, of the kings, it's like, no, God allowed his people to grow fat and go mm-hmm. into unbelief, right. um, trusting in themselves or their institutions or, or their right. wealth. Um he he did that. He allowed them to do that in order right. to um, call them back to repentance, right? Right. And I think, at least where I'm at, and this is a personal observation, is that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Is he's calling us to repent and say, "We're why is the gospel not predominating here? Let's go." Like, what else do you have? Because you don't have any money anymore. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have the people anymore. Yeah, your membership and, roles have, have dwindled to Right. And, and resource-wise, where are your resources at? So what are you going to do then? Mm-hmm. If you can't count on money and resources and people, what are you going to fall back on? Yeah. Well, and, and slowly, I mean, we're losing buildings and properties too. And yeah, exactly. We, we talked about that too, that small congregations are closing and selling off. Large congregations, uh, depending on when they were built, they're having trouble paying their mortgage. And I have friends. That's a big part of their voters' meetings is trying to figure out how are we going to pay the mortgage and pay a pastor? Or yeah. how are we going to pay the mortgage and afford to pay for all these programs that we have? Mm-hmm. Whereas me, a pastor of a, of a smaller congregation, we're just looking at it from the other side of the spectrum. We don't have money. We don't have people. We don't have resources. Uh, so what are we going to do? Right. Other than Other than basically hitch our wagon to the gospel. Right. So the Spirit sanctifies us by means of daily forgiveness. <laughs> there it is. And so through daily forgiveness, through the daily proclamation of the gospel, or just being daily grounded in your baptismal prom- God's baptismal promises, we are constantly crawling back to our baptism. And that in that activity of being returned to our baptism, we are made holy. Mm-hmm. That And then the works sprout and grow from that. Mm. And... Continue, then that's, this comes from within through the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. And then we press on toward the eschatological, that is the last day, when the entire human nature will be made new. Yeah. Right now we are fully sinful and fully righteous in Christ through faith, but as the last day, we'll just be fully righteous because we'll be with Christ. Mm-hmm. So sanctification takes place within the framework of the Decalogue, in the callings and estates that are God-ordained, which 
what I was talking about earlier, that in relation to the Decalogue, how does that look in your daily vocation? Yeah. That is the, da- the table of duties. Faith toward God and love toward neighbor, as you said. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Which which is why I picked up, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, you know, Leah always talks about the offering as the gifts being gathered. That just that turn of phrase, we will, you know, the gifts will now be gathered. You're basically laying out, this is not your quote unquote offering. You're not offering this to God. What you're doing is you're offering this to your neighbor. So let's call it what it is. God gives you these gifts and we're going to gather them up in the offering plate, and then we're going to distribute them for the good of the neighbor. Yeah. And that this is one way in which it's crass and material and consumeristic and capitalistic, but this is one way in which God makes sure that the gospel can be preached because, well, I got to pay for the lights. I got to pay the bills. I got to pay for wine for communion. I got to pay for candles. I got to pay the pastor. I got to pay lots of things. Got to pay for the Sunday school material. No money. Can't buy that stuff. Mm-hmm. Can't buy Bibles, can't buy hymnals. It's just a fact of life. And yet, like we said earlier, it's neither good nor bad, but rather how you use the gifts. Right. I mean, God put you in that congregation. He, right. ma- he made you a member there. He gave you right. that pastor to care for. And so we can be like Solomon and squander the wisdom that was given to him as a gift. Mm-hmm. But likewise, we can also recognize that true wisdom is Jesus and therefore not squander that wisdom, but focus it on where it belongs. And then in relation to the Decalogue, we can say, ah, okay. This is how the Ten Commandments works itself out in our daily life, in our callings, in our vocations. And in this way, we, we constantly need to crawl back to our baptism. And if we can't crawl, have somebody carry you. And if somebody can't carry you, walk together and support each other, lean against each other. But one way or the other, the Holy Spirit's going to send you a preacher who's going to drag your butt back to baptism and yeah. throw you back in the pool. I mean, this is the whole Pool of Siloam thing that he couldn't get into the pool, right? Hmm. Because he wasn't fast enough because he, he couldn't use his legs. You're going to miss that one that chance when the angel shows up, right? Exactly, exactly. And so he's asking Jesus, basically, dude, I, I can't make it to the pool. And Jesus is like, eh, I'll just heal your legs. <laughs> because, again, I can throw you in the water and you can be maybe healed and, and, and cleansed ritually, maybe purified. But how about if I just heal you one time for all time so you can just go to the synagogue every day? How about that? Right. <laughs> Let's do that instead. So that's the framework, is that sanctification, our holiness is worked out within the framework of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But in the calling and estates that God has ordained for us, which we call our vocations, which flow out of the general order that results in Christian love. Love, again, in the, in the sense of charity, in the sense of selflessness, not in the sense of self-chosen. Love. In fact, I heard a great uh, a Japanese, I don't know, parable or whatever you want to call it, not parable, uh, a little, what is a little, um, anywho, is that, uh, in, that in your life, you have two families, the family you're born into and the family you choose. Oh, okay. And what would that be called? What do you call one of those little nuggets of wisdom? That's what we'll call it. A nugget of wisdom. Nugget of wisdom. There we go. Um, (laughs) yeah, I've got Aesop's fable stuck in my head because Luther referred to those as nuggets of wisdom, but, Mm -hmm. um, Nonetheless, you have this these two families, the family that you're born into and the family that you choose. And we could, as a Christian, say three families, the family that you're baptized into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that always, in the, two, in the two family sense, you can't choose what family you're born into, but you can choose who you love in a certain mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. And yet, in other cases, you can't choose who you fall in love with. That's why it's called falling in love, not throwing yourself into love or, or jumping off the cliff of love. Even though I, in my own life, have certainly jumped off the cliff of love too many times. <laughs> right? No parachute, right? 
It's like I read a meme this morning. Follow your heart is just adult code for follow your your lust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like follow your heart and find your truth. It's like really what that means is whatever you crave and lust after is really what you're following. Yeah. And so when we talk about Christian love, then or the general order that results, you know, the general ordering of your life that results in Christian love, that love is selfless, self-giving. It's gifting love. It doesn't seek itself. Which is why I said morality and love are not equal. They don't equate to each other. They can overlap for sure. They can coincide. I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. But very often love does not look good. (laughs) It's it's messy. Love is messy because it's two sinners. Mm, It's two selfish people who are self-seeking and self-centered. And as I tell people when I counsel them, it's not 50-50. No relationship is ever 50-50. You're either all in or you're not. And then once you're all in, there's going to be times where you're carrying 80, 90, 99.9% of the relationship. There's going to be other times where you're completely being carried by your spouse, mm-hmm. for right. sure. Um, just think of when you're, sh- when you're flat on your back and you have the flu. Like, yeah. who's, who's, carrying, who's taking care of the kids when, you're, when you've got the flu? Who's driving them to their appointments, taking them to their lessons, getting them dropped off at school? Like, who's doing that? You're not giving 50% of anything. I just take the week off. Right. I'm just going to yeah, take the week off. Um, but likewise, as a, you know this too, there's in your relationship, any relationship, familial relationship, spousal, whatever, Christian, there's times where you say, you know what, sit down, I got this. Mm-hmm. And you're you're doing it because you recognize that you've done enough. Let me do this. Yeah. And yet selfishly, it makes you feel good about yourself. Yeah. You're like, I did something nice for that person. And they said, thank you. Yeah. And the important point here that, that uh, Peters is making is that uh, and that Luther does too, is that yeah. we're placed into that calling or estate, right? Exactly. We're given that spouse, we're given that neighbor, we're given that one to love. Right. Um, and and then we're also given, if we listen very carefully to them, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're given how to love them, right? They'll, right? they'll tell us what love would look like for them, you know, in a sacrificial way. Right. They'll tell us how to parent them. They'll tell us how to spouse them. They'll tell us how to pastor them. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a question of, well, working out the rules. Yeah. <laughs> because in a neighborly sense, you do need the law. Yeah. Try and try and try and uh, raise your children in forgiveness of sins alone. Again, if you want to be a true antinomian and you want to seek freedom from all the law's demands, try that with your kids. Just one day, twenty four hours. Go ahead. Call that like uh, free love or flower power. Yeah. Go ahead. Exercise free love with your children. Just forgive everything they do. No demands. No expectations. No rules. Just let your kids govern themselves for a day. And see how excited you are about being an antinomian. <laughs> yeah. Like forgiveness is a very powerful thing when they feel right. the sting and accusation or the possible judgment. Right. And right. then and then that judgment is withheld or it's set aside. Right. Yes. And now they get it. Oh, okay. That's what love looks like. Right. <laughs> I'm a to- you're a total idiot and you love me. An- or I'm a total idiot and you love me anyway. Right. I know. Mm-hmm. As my wife... Uh, <laughs> As my wife occasionally says, you're the smartest, stupid person I've ever met, or the stupidest, smart person I've ever met, depending. <laughs> Either, way. <laughs> Either way, it works. It's usually when I stab myself or run into a wall or something. It's like, did you not see that there? I'm like, yeah. Or like, I'll be wearing a hat and then looking for my hat. <laughs> it's amazing you're still alive. <laughs> I know. It's like, where the heck is my hat? And she's like, it's on your head. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I put it on. Mm. Yeah. It, it, no, it is a miracle. <laughs> It is truly a sign that there is a God that I'm still alive. The general or, order that results in Christian love. There exactly. Is. A lot of Christian love is just out of pity. You're like, oh, you poor thing. Let me help <laughs> you with that. I don't. You're going to hurt yourself. You're running with scissors. <laughs> mm. So 
In that sense, the Reformer can say, quote, we are blessed through Christ alone. With reference to the daily authentication of faith by acts of love, he can add, yet both actions are holy, working through faith such as this and also through the divine estates and orders. One is the work of the Lord Christ, the other is appropriated to the Spirit, for Luther praises the church as a Christian holy people in whom Christ lives, works, and reigns with redemptionum, through grace and the forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Spirit works through vivic- <laughs> vivication and sanctification. Mm-hmm. That's a mouthful of, of Latin there. Yeah. Through, through sins being swept away daily and through the renewal of life. Yeah. Wow, that's a mouthful. Yeah, it's great. It is great. So, essentially... Uh, the way in which holy working through faith comes, it works itself out, or the way that holiness works itself out is in the divine estates and orders of your vocation. Mm-hmm. And it's the work of Christ appropriated to the spirit and that the Christian church is a Christian holy people in whom Christ lives, one, works, two, rules, three, through redemption. That is through grace and the forgiveness of sins. And then the Holy Spirit works through vivifying you, that is enlivening you and making you holy through sins being washed away or swept away daily through the renewal of life and the renewal of life. So again, no Jesus, no forgiveness, no forgiveness, no holiness. Yeah, no spirit, no work of the spirit. And so if you if someone says you're not holy or not sanctified, simply fire back, of course I am. All my sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. That literally is a one-to-one binary equation. Mm-hmm. Are your sins forgiven for Christ's sake? Yes. Then you're holy. That's the only thing that affects true holiness is the forgiveness of sins through Christ, because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But I want to add something. (laughs) Right. It's like that little word work, Mm -hmm. the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ, which is received through faith. It's passive. I mean, you have to tell me that, that, uh, you know, I did the liturgy, right? So that makes God happy, right? right? Well, and our works don't come with a price tag, which is another thing. They have no value, which drives us nuts, because why do good works? Mm, because they're good. <laughs> well, what do I get from it? Nothing. What makes them Other, good too, right? Right. Yeah. What makes them good? Well, Jesus, mm-hmm. he laid them out for you before you were born. Oh, okay. Well, what do, what do good works look like? Read the gospels. <laughs> yeah. Whatever Jesus does, you get those works through faith. Okay. But how do those look in my daily vocation? Well, they're usually hidden from you, so you can't take credit for them. And if you do take credit for them, they're not a good work. It's like it's like Luther saying that the angels rejoice over the father changing his child's diaper, you know? Yeah, and right. I think the mothers like that. I think it was the, I might have got it wrong, but the mothers would like that idea because, of course, the fathers, you know, avoid yeah. that duty as much, <laughs> as much as they can. Well, and that's the point. Luther discovered, uh, so he continues here to kind of bring this to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Luther discovered how to depict God's way of dealing with the one who is confessing going back to what we were saying about that, connect back to one's baptism and then come right up to the act of confessing one's sins by incorporating the works of the Spirit of God, using primarily the perfect tense, this Holy Spirit has me. Mm -hmm. He does not identify the entry point into the Christian life as baptism, though that would correspond to the general experience of the common people he is addressing. The call of the gospel is accentuated, which would more appropriately describe what happens in a mission situation, but the chain of events stretches from the past through the present and on into the future. So when he, we say, you're not sanctified, and the response is, the Holy Spirit has me, that's a past, present, and future tense statement. Yeah, perfect. That the, whole, the Holy Spirit has come from the future to assure me that what has happened for me in the past is a present tense reality. 
And always will be and always has been. Which is why we are free to confess our sins then. Through declaration, right? I mean, it's external. Exactly. It comes outside and and works that inward change. Exactly. That God sends you a preacher for this very reason. In fact, I would argue that the absence of a preacher is what leads us to antinomianism or anomianism or autonomianism because the preacher comes and announces the impossibility of obeying the law perfectly. And therefore, the, the possibility of Jesus having obeyed the law perfectly for us in our place. Mm. It's what gets them killed. <laughs> because the true antinomians amongst the religious leaders, that's why they, they have this drive to execute him. Yeah. Because he's saying, dude, you, you actually don't know the law. I mean, you think you know the law because you read it. You read a lot about it. You spend certainly enough time talking about it. But it's not really lawful, the law that you're preaching. Hmm. You're preaching the law, but it's not preached lawfully. Because you're, you're essentially standing in front of the law saying, we got this. We'll interpret it for you. You just come to us and we'll be the, the depository, the dispensary of the law. In regards to piety, prayer, good works, church attendance, offerings, everything. We've got it. Again, just go read the Midrash. Mm. read rabbinic commentary on these things i mean it's extensive mm-hmm. and but it's still doable i mean in the end it is doable it's just it's all encompassing yeah right it will swallow up your entire life because your entire life has to then be one of constant work versus no the holy spirit has me and he will appropriate the works of jesus and make them my works however that looks yeah and that's uh or we might call faith like a ch- of a child, right? It's a little, it's pretty simple, right? It's it, and it's holding it's holding good works in a dead hand of faith. Mm-hmm. It's receiving all works as gift, all good works as because again, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, not from inside me. Which is why we need preachers, because what comes out of me, as you pointed out in, uh, towards the beginning, is mm-hmm. what comes out of me is sin. <laughs> yeah. What comes out of me pollutes me and pollutes the whole world, actually. Yeah. Hey, did matter. you see that they're going to start taking all the plastic out of the Pacific Ocean now? This genius invented this way of getting the plastic out of the ocean, and there's going to start kind of bacteria it or something, or was it? Yeah, it's a bacteria that eats plastic or something like that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really wild. It's amazing. Um, I've seen the the pictures of those like large flotillas, basically. Oh, it's crazy. collected, pl- yeah, collected like, garbage that spans hundreds yeah. of miles. <laughs> right. Amazing. Yeah, it's like these massive islands of just garbage. But yeah. I love my little plastic bottles. That's right. <laughs> little plastic castles. But, uh, no, no, no. Um, so that's really the thing that Peter's is after. This is commenting on Luther. And this is what really Luther's after in his catechism. I think for my own, we've talked about this, uh, coming into the church from outside as an atheist and reading the third article of the creed is what made me a Lutheran. Mm-hmm. And to this day, 20 years or 18 years, 19 years after having read the third article explanation by Luther, it still stuns and, and amazes me and astounds me, especially as, a, you know, once the more you get into late medieval Roman Catholic theology, for example, and modern Protestant theology, and then you read Luther's explanation of the third article, it really is a remarkable piece of work and yep. is really an anachronism <laughs> within the history of the interpretation of the third article of the creed and sanctification, because Luther just assigns all of the work of sanctification to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but it's uh, what Werner Ehlert's book, right? Uh, Christianity in the first four centuries. Is that what it's called? Yeah, um, it emphasizes that the third article creed—that is the—that was the ancient church understanding of it. It, it yeah, it Luther is returning um, to like you know what? What is the? 
expression holy in the in the yeah, creed yeah, yeah. It refers to holy people holy things right. the holy church right. Right. Um, you know everything that god the holy spirit works um right in us and i think you us. had mentioned this in a previous podcast too is how you address your congregation then in on sunday mm-hmm. morning or at other times is saints yeah and as we just read the reason is are you in church yes well then you're a part of the community of the saints <laughs> that's right there we go. You're a saint. But pastor, I don't think I've done enough or I have done anything. Exactly. It's all gift. Yeah. Well, how many miracles do we have to authenticate with eyewitnesses? Right. Three, at least. <laughs> well, we've hedged on that because Mother Teresa and Pope John Paul, they were, you know, it was sketchy. <laughs> it was sketchy. Yeah. Just kind of relax the think, rules a little bit for those guys. Right. And that's the thing, too, is when it comes to justification and even creation, we're, we're certainly quick to jump on the, the gift language train. But when it comes to sanctification, we love to hedge our bets. Mm. We're like, baptism's a gift, Lord's Supper's a gift, faith is a gift, but... And then we go, we, 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 all the way into our good works. Prove it, yeah. Yeah, versus the Holy Spirit has me. So whatever I do, I can't take credit for that. And then likewise, when you, when in your vocation, you, whatever you want to say, get a glimpse or it's revealed to you that the work that you are doing has led one to come to the church or led one to Christ, or, you know, acts of mercy, for example. You can't take credit for that. You can't say, well, I loved him in such a way, or I loved her in such a way that it actually motivated them to come to church on Sunday. Eh, wrong answer. Mm-hmm. The fact that you love them is a work of the Holy Spirit, not your own work. Because, yeah, if, if I got the choice of who would be in church on Sunday versus who I would not let come to church on Sunday or who I don't want to come to church on Sunday— the congregation is going to end up looking exactly like me. And then we'll just rip out the pews and put in a cage. I was going to say, was, this is a... <laughs> you know, and we'll have an hour of worship and an hour of jujitsu. We'll have an open roll afterwards. Instead of cake and coffee or cookies and coffee, we'll have an open roll. Well, nice. mad time, you know. Nice. nice. Um, that's my ideal church. It's a lot of music, a lot of art, a lot of jujitsu. Um, we're at the end. So for those of you, we're done with Peter's and we're going to tangent into a pick of the week and type of stuff. But I just want to cover this whole thing about art since it was fresh in my mind. So you can tune out now if you want to. Um, not that you, you know, sorry, I just gave you permission to listen to our own podcast or not listen to it. But um, that's squirrel. It's already pretty far in. So yeah. if they made it this far, um, they're already with us. I was us. talking with my friend Kier. Um, he's a drummer. And mm-hmm. he posted on Instagram that he started playing drums again because he hasn't played in like six years. And I said, hey, you know, how long have you been playing? And he said, well, I played in high school and in, in, in college. And I kind of just kind of, I tried the music thing in high school and it just didn't really catch with me. And then I tried the art thing, painting and everything, and didn't really catch on. He said, but once I discovered the martial arts, the kinesthetic expression, I was like, wait, back up. Say that again. He said, well, I tried musical arts and it didn't really catch for me. I tried the I tried the graphic arts and it didn't really catch for me either. But once I discovered the martial arts and that I could express myself in a certain way, kinesthetically, physically, it's the thing that caught. And he said, you know, because with music, when you're in a band and I went through this myself being in jazz bands, blues bands, rock bands and whatnot, concert bands, you can perform and work your butt off and make a CD of music and no one cares. No one listens. You can paint, you can draw, you can sculpt, and you can put that out there and no one was going to pay attention or buy it. And yet with the martial arts, whatever you put into it is immediately returned to you. Hmm. And whatever, you, however you, you express yourself in the martial arts kinesthetically immediately comes back to you in full. <clears throat> and it blew my mind because I had just never, this is how, you know, this is me and my dumbness is I never connected the art of martial arts to the other forms because I went to art school and studied music and performed and 
never really connected the arts in that sense of why wasn't music something that I pursued as a career? Why wasn't graphic arts something I pursued as a career? And what, what was it about them that I just found unsatisfying at the end that I didn't pursue them? And for me, it was that thing. It's the lack of return on the investment. And that you struggle and struggle as an artist, and there may no, be no payoff for that. You may just struggle. And then yeah. it's just silence out there. It's a vacuum. Well, the part Versus, of the problem with, with yeah. all, you know, whether it's visual or musical art, and I think even martial arts too, is that um, we forget that that, that word art, um, it's a substitute for technique, right? Yes. And yeah, so, uh, like for a musician, the joy of, of the creative, you know, creating uh, a musical composition probably comes after a lot of extensive work. Right. In learning technique and, you know, various, you know, different schools yes. um, of, of, of approach or, or whatever right. it is. You put a lot of work into it before um, you really can start to see any of the fruit of that labor. Right. Well, and the thing, too, is then when you do listen to a musician who is talented, very talented mm-hmm. and adept at their art or an artist, graphic artist, and you look at their art, they're so good at the technique that it seems effortless. Yeah. And you think to yourself, I could play trumpet that well if I just practiced, or I could paint that way if I just practiced enough. And the answer is maybe, but a large part of learning technique is to develop your own way of expressing what you want to get out there, what you want to put out in the world, your voice, your music, your artwork, maybe. And again, maybe nobody pays attention to that. Maybe you put it out there and no one thinks it's of value. Mm -hmm. But with the martial arts or kinesthetic arts, like I said, what you put into it is what you get back from it. And the, the return on your investment yeah, so is... So you get more it, immediate feedback, is what you're saying. Literally immediate, because yeah. it's physical. It's an immediate feedback. And yet, at the highest level of the martial arts, the technique, again, is it seems like, that's so easy. And what you don't recognize is that with all the arts, the better, the more technically precise you become in your art form and your expression becomes, it's a matter of centimeters and inches then. Mm-hmm, and, right. and so if you're not grounded in that art, what another person who practices that art and recognizes and notices and focuses in on, you're completely missing forest through the trees kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Our friend, uh, Maynard James Keenan, the purple belt in jujitsu, he talks about this, that it's, it's, it's just a matter of inches at, at the highest level. And so when I'm watching the fights or I'm listening to music and you know this too, because of your background, when we listen to music, for example, we notice things musically that other people either don't even pay attention to, or when you bring it up, they go, why is that important? Yeah. Like just like uh, the mix quality on a song. Right. Like, I'll obsess about the mix quality on a song. I'll be like the mix quality of the song is really bad. <laughs> why is that? Or um, like Rick Beato points out it, when you record analog, there's a difference because there's like where there's edits, there's like these little, the timing is different in analog mm-hmm. recording versus digital recording. And if you learn to recognize that little pause, like um, what's a good example? Like you listen to Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains. They all recorded analog. Well, they in recorded the analog and they didn't record with click track. Right. Yes. Uh, so the time slips. There's a hesitation. And, oh, you right? know what it was? It was He was talking about Stone Temple Pilots, mm-hmm. Vaseline. That in the middle of Vaseline, the drum beat, there's a pause. In there's the like drum. a hesitation before the yeah, downbeat. Yeah, there's a hesitation. Right, exactly, yeah. before the downbeat. That's because of analog mm-hmm. and because you can't really fix that in post. And so what you get is what you get. And it's the same way that in the kinesthetic arts is in the moment you get what you get and you can't mm-hmm. edit it 
you can't go back and fix it. There's nothing to do about it except recognize it. And then the next time you go back and try and fix that thing, but it's going to take you a hundred times or a thousand times to fix that thing. And like literally, and I've told the story before, there's a guy I roll with who he submits to me the exact same way every time we roll. And we've been doing this now. It'll be a year in May that this has been going on. And so I've literally been defending myself in inches against his attack for a year now. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he less and less catches me in the submission, but he still catches me. But now he's got to string together a sequence of attacks to get to that submission against me because I've learned to recognize his attacks and I've corrected myself inch by inch, literally like a toe and a finger and my hip and my head, like just moment by moment by moment. And then the outcome is improvement. Mm -hmm. But it's so minute and so locked into the details that for someone on the outside, it just looks like chaos. But from the inside, from inside that conversation, from inside that artistic expression, you really begin to value and appreciate the art as art. And the reason I bring this up then is that how we express ourselves, as, as you like really, really nailed it, is that art is technique. And so when we express ourselves, when we make an expression, when we confess, there is a technique to it. And there are rules. And if you don't follow the rules, then that you can't express yourself mm-hmm. as right. well as you could following, you know, learning the technique. And so if I decide if there's three steps to a technique and I decide to skip, no, skip step two, right. the, te- the technique won't work. It just literally will never work. And so you've got to follow the three steps. But then once you follow the steps, you realize, oh, there's more to it than just these gross motor skill mm-hmm. things right. that are going on. And I think this is the thing then that, that talking with my friend Kier really blew my mind to put those things in the whole basket of arts. And then that, that's, that's the thing is that when you, when you recognize that art is technique, technique is art, and how you're going to express that, mm-hmm. it frees you up to just pursue the art for the sake of that art. Right. And you realize, oh, it's in the technique that I express myself and that the further I go in this, the less people are going to recognize and appreciate what's happening. And that the literally, if, if people discover you, so to speak, artistically speaking, it's kind of a fluke yeah. because there's so many variables that had to kind of flow together for people to go, that's something that we all want to be a part of or what we all want to listen to and buy into versus you listen to jazz and the top level jazz musicians. Very few people really like jazz. Mm, it's true. And especially the top, the, the like West Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And then within that, who's West Montgomery's trumpet player and to recognize and appreciate that West Montgomery's trumpet player, that solo that he plays is one of the best ever on this one song. You know, you can go down that rabbit hole and it just gets tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller and more detail oriented. And you kind of get lost then like the song doesn't even matter anymore because you're just focused in on this one person playing this one sequence of notes in this one spot in the song. And then you start breaking that down even. Yeah. And really nerding out. And I think that's the thing, though, is that we want to function on the level of surface details so much and see the, you know, see the forest through the trees kind of thing, again, to push the analogy. So when we go into church, we make these gross generalizations and just judge based on what is on the outside mm-hmm. versus taking the time, taking responsibility for our neighbor, loving our neighbor in such a way to ask the way in which you've chosen to express yourself right now. Like, why? 
Like right. why, why are you choosing to express yourself this way? Why are you complaining about this? Or why, what is, what about this makes you so grateful? Like lead me, lead me with you to the right. finer point here versus I just don't have time mm. or to just dismiss them outright because they're not doing what you're doing. Well, and so much, so much of what we do in the church um, is the result of years and decades and centuries, yeah. you know, millennia really um, of effort that, that have been put in, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then we get caught up in the minutia. To of, make it very difficult to express ourselves essentially. Right. But we get caught up in the minutia and we say, well, yeah. like, why did we, like I mentioned before, early in the show, like, why did we right. pick that? Why'd you pick that hymn? It's yeah. like, well, there's a whole series and sequence of discussions, you know, yeah. leading up to that as to why we choose any hymn, <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. and, uh, that particular hymn on that particular Sunday. Right. And, oh, what well, contributed to that? Or maybe it was just mm-hmm. inadvertent. Maybe I just, you know, drop of the hat, right. just pulled, pulled it out and said, Hey, this might be fun. Let's try it. Hey, right? I've done that. You know, we, Good Shepherd Sunday, somehow I didn't pay attention. I picked out hymns that had nothing to do with Good Shepherd readings. You know, thankfully we had a blizzard and we didn't have church, <laughs> but wow. I just felt really foolish that I, I put together the readings. I put together the bulletin, you know, yeah, yeah. cut and pasting stuff in. And somehow I even wrote the sermon. And I, as I'm writing the sermon, I realized, oh, wait a minute. I, I didn't pick out a single hymn that's Good Shepherd hymn. And I think what we forget is that, you know, every moment in the church is momentary, right? I mean, yeah. it is fleeting. Yeah. It, it passes. Right. Um, and it's you don't remember it even by the time you get home. Right. Um so don't overthink it, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, just, just be in the moment, um, right. enjoy what you receive and everything mm-hmm. that's led to that or contributed to that, the artistry the pastor brings or, or the musicians or whoever, um, you know, or the, or your person in the pew next to you, you know, who yeah. has a pleasant or unpleasant voice, whatever that they bring, um, just enjoy that moment and then, and then move on, you know? Well, and I think this is the purpose of good order in the sense of discipline. And mm. discipline, I don't mean like behave yourself. I mean discipline in the sense of doing the same thing over and over again, even when you don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Technique, that, yeah. That the discipline that goes on within the ritual, the discipline that goes in within the, the context of the liturgy, for example, we do discipline ourselves or we exercise discipline, the sense of the confession or the, the sense of what hymns are we going to sing this Sunday in relation to the church year and the readings and so forth. Is that we do, we, we practice this discipline on a weekly basis for the sake of good church order so that it is not chaotic, but that within that, then there is freedom to express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in the Bible study, for example, the, the freedom to express yourself within the context of Bible study is to ask questions and to ask a question, you know what, I've never really understood this, or I, you know, why do we practice close communion? I've never understood that. Or why did we sing this hymn last Sunday when we normally sing this other hymn? Like the freedom to express yourself and ask those questions can, at least where I'm at, um, it comes from within the context of, well, we have these disciplines that we practice. Mm-hmm. And within the discipline, within this technique, then there is a freedom to express ourselves, but we're not going to give away the creed just because you're upset with the, you don't like the Apostles' Creed and you only want to confess the Nicene Creed. Or we never, you know, you want us to confess the Athanasian Creed more often. Why? Like, yeah. let's have that conversation. Um, it's like I had a conversation for about 15 seconds with a, a trustee who asked why we don't have an internal flame in, in our church. And can we? And that was about a 15 second conversation. And, and he was like, okay, I understand now. Great. Done. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just with with without boundaries without law without rule there's no freedom whereas yeah. we tend to think that the uh, like we uh, we tend to think that the lack of boundaries is freedom 
And I think that's what gets us in trouble then is like, well, we, we, we shouldn't have so many rules or so many restrictions because then we can't, we're not free to express ourselves. Mm. It's like, well, yeah, but what do you believe first? Let's start with that. What do you believe? Because you do have some boundaries for sure. It's just, they're not being expressed. Right. So, so tell me exactly what you're saying when you say we need to have less boundaries or less restrictions around this thing. Right. Yeah. And there, there, I mean, there's a fear of, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's right, but a fear of doing the wrong thing, um, yeah. you know, which I mean, well, okay. Sometimes that's right. Sometimes it's, 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 it's false. I mean, you're, you're just being fearful. You're not actually, right. you're not actually doing anything. Yeah. Uh, there's fear of criticism, right? Because mm-hmm. then you might say the wrong thing. You might be wrong. And then you have to be corrected in your criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's really all just based back to that fear of, the, of freedom that, that you're free to, yeah. to question and to doubt and to wonder. And um, well, we have to put on a good show. We have to wear our masks so that people can't see our true motivations. And so we're always afraid of that external criticism, the aesthetic criticism, because the aesthetic criticism, it might expose our underlying motivations for what we're doing, what we're doing. Mm. And like I said, the, the projection of our pride outward in a negative way, yeah. because again, I'm proud of my children. I'm not saying that's a negative, but pride in the sense of look at me. And look at what I've accomplished or look what I'm doing. And I'm going to post on social media. I don't care what people think about what I do. Well, then you shouldn't post pictures of you doing stuff on social media if you don't yeah, actually care. Itself what, is, yeah, the uh, post ironically. itself says you care a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in fact, what you post about shows what you care about. It's like when you walk into a house, what's hanging on the walls? Mm-hmm. That'll tell you everything you need to know about what they value. And so it's, it's simply what I project out onto the world is my defense against letting people see the true me, the real me, or my true motives. And so we do, we judge, we judge so much on surface details that we miss the underlying motivation for a lot of these things. And, and then it's really arresting when you, when you encounter yeah. an artist that um, doesn't have that kind of restraint. Right. You yeah, know? It's actually truly free. Yeah. In the, I mean, I was in thinking, the expression of their art. I was thinking of like Bjork, you know? Oh yeah, right. It's like whatever. I mean, I know she was classically trained she she knows the technique but she's departed so far from it which is what you would expect from a person like it's like abstract expressionism in that sense she Mm -hmm. knows classical technique she can sing arias she just looked at it and went yeah that's just not how i want to express myself other people have done that let me go outside the dots and the dashes let's see what's outside of that let's see what what sounds we can produce outside of these things yeah and still you, you know you look at medulla that album medulla she made which is all sounds it's yeah. so primordial. Like the first thing that I thought to you, the adjective I thought to describe medulla was primordial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it is. Well, she's singing and, with the birds literally, you know? Right. And so, yeah, you could call those things songs, but only in the loosest sense of a classical definition of a song. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the musicality of it. Is there musicality? Sure. It, but it's, it, you know, free jazz, I think is more free jazz. It's is like past that. I yeah, mean. It's, it's past that. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I, at least free jazz, you can be like, I get where you're going here. Mm-hmm. I get what you're trying to do. But with Medulla, I'm like, oh, she's going somewhere. <laughs> like, this is pretty raw stuff. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's the thing is we, we're constantly grappling with this in the church. The, you know, freedom versus um, needing rules, needing discipline, needing good order. And wrestling with freedom versus good order versus I think that's the problem is that it's not freedom or good order, but rather within order, there's freedom. Like I said, learning the technique frees you up to express yourself. 
Yeah. I mean, we do things decently in order um, because otherwise it could really be a barrier, I, I think, to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to follow the conventions of language, right. of social behavior. I mean, if, if, if the church behaved <clears throat> completely foreign. Right. Um, well, imagine it, that I, I decide to preach the sermon during the, pre, the prelude. Mm-hmm. And so people that come to church as we're singing the first hymn expect the sermon to be in the middle of the service right before the Lord's Supper. And so we just go through the service and afterwards they said, why was there no sermon today? Well, I switched the sermon to the prelude. It's in the prelude. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll get here earlier then. And they start coming to church earlier. And then I wait till after the erotic blessing to start preaching the sermon the next week. I'm just constantly moving the sermon around depending on how I feel. Or there's just no sermon at all. Or the sermon's an hour and a half. And then today it's five minutes. It's like if I'm constantly moving it around and constantly changing people, you're disrupting Again, really what we're talking about is loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you're, you're, the reason for good order is, one, for the preaching of the gospel, and two, then, for the sake of your neighbor, for the love of your neighbor. That if your neighbor can't hear the gospel or doesn't know when you're going to preach the gospel, then you're not really loving your neighbor. So, that, so the best um, artists, like musical artists, so we know this, yeah. is, is you can see album to album of progression. If they, mm-hmm. if they make a hard left turn... Yeah. And they they adopt just a totally new style and, and still call themselves the same artist. You know, yeah. it's the same band or whatever. Right. Um, it's not always well received. You'll end up right. alienating. Yeah, it's like you changed. <laughs> right. I'm you either of, sold uh, out or you betrayed your fans or what were you thinking? Yeah. I can, you, know, you can think of a number of artists who've done that. They got yeah. bored with themselves. Right. right. Exactly. But but they they took a risk, and you know, if you're willing to make that risk and just be something very mm-hmm. different. Um, I mean, you're free to do that, but don't count the cost. <laughs> right. Well, and we, I think we talked about this. I was reading a poet in an interview. He was saying, he was asked the question, how do you write for your audience? Or how do you decide what to write for your audience? He goes, that question is the absolute opposite of what you as a poet should be focused on. Mm-hmm. Because if you're writing for your audience, you're not writing poetry. Because poetry is a free expression of what's going on in your head or your heart or whatever at mm-hmm. that very moment. Yeah. Yeah. And however you choose to express that, the words that you choose, the structure of the poem. If you're writing for an audience, it's not poetry. Right. It's you writing for an audience. You're writing copy. Right. And that's the challenge to a pastor too, though, is as, you're, as a preacher of the good news of Jesus Christ, I have a specific message I'm called to preach. Yeah. And it's not a self-expression. It's, it's, not it's a external. Self-expression. It's given. Yeah. And yet, within the context of the sermon, you are expressing yourself mm-hmm. as the preacher. <laughs> and yeah. that's why it's the imperfect word of God. Yeah. And likewise, then, that's why the Lord's Supper is the center of the service, not the sermon. Because the, the words of institution are the perfect word of God. And they sanctify us, by the way. Mm. You know, the sermon may, <laughs> maybe sanctify you, mm. depending on what the Holy Spirit chooses to do with your words. But the words of institution, the Lord's Supper, do in fact, sanctify you. Well, and you might you much, might want to make them a little prettier, though, right? <laughs> sure, that's right. Dress it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it's like justification. You may not hear justification in the sermon or not believe that the for you-ness of the gospel is for you in relation to the sermon being preached. But when I put the wafer in your mouth and tip the chalice to your lips and say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, in the, in the sense of the chalice, it, there's no doubt about it. It's a little hard to ignore that. And likewise, then if someone asked me the question of like, Pastor, I'm not really sure I'm holy. I'm like, yeah, I just saw you at the Lord's table yesterday. The Holy Spirit has you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. Are you baptized? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that 
like Peters was pointing at, although baptism may not be the entry point into the Christian life or Christianity, justification is, and the way in which God chooses to justify you is in the way of baptism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the point then is to kind of wrap it all up in a bow is that to express ourselves properly in relation to sanctification, it's got to be baptism talk. It's got to be Holy Spirit talk. It's got to be gospel talk. And therefore it's got to be Jesus talk. Mm-hmm. And that's a it's, technique, right? I mean, that's something we learn. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's constantly grinding and grinding. Like I said, why did I throw out my sermon? Because I listen to a lot of stand-up comics who throw out their material every year and start from scratch to basically challenge themselves and motivate themselves to always be moving toward, you know, pushing themselves. Mm-hmm. To be better, to be to be not just good at what they do, but to become a master of what they do, and well, this is and a very platonic thing. But the nature of attention too, it requires some invention, some creativity, sure. right? In order to, right. I mean, if people know all of your cliches that you use every week in the sermon, well, and this is what I mean in the, in the mechanical sense of preaching is I just got bored with myself. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. got bored, and when I get bored with preaching, it's not that I feel like the congregation is getting bored. That's not what I'm thinking of. What I'm thinking of is if I'm bored. I'm not investing enough of myself in sermon preparation mm. because I got this. I just show up and toss something out there for them. I'll nail it every time. And then you fall back on your tricks and tropes and you use the analogies that you know people like. And again, is it the gospel? Hope so. Is it pointing to the gifts? Yes, 100%. But if I'm bored with it, am I really preaching the text? Am I really focusing in with laser precision on Christ and the gifts? Am I really paying attention to how I speak and how I mm. preach mm. so that I'm not putting up. Uh, and again, I, I, most of my people are blue collar people. They're very simple people and they have a very simple language, a very simple language lexicon. If I use a lot of words that end in shun, they have no mm-hmm. idea what I'm talking about. Right. And do I even know what I'm talking about? They like very simple one, two syllable words. They like very simple analogies. They like analogies that have to do with things they understand like games or, or hard work or mm-hmm. struggle and pain. These things that are very raw and very right in their face every day, all day. So the sermon then, the language of the sermon is going to take on that, that flavor, that character. I'm going to season it with that language. And yet that language still has to push, push, push deeper into the gospel lesson, not deeper into what are you doing and what are you not doing and how are you doing it? And how is God rewarding you or punishing you because you don't play by the rules or you're playing so well? Versus, well, what has Jesus already done? And what does Jesus do for you in the present tense? Yeah. And how is this going to basically, how is this going to lead to God pouring you out of this congregation and back into your vocations in your communities in such a way that you can live in your baptism, use your baptism, and appreciate that the gospel produces good works. So you don't have to worry about them. They're just going to happen. It's organic. Yeah. And so for me as a pastor, being a faithful steward of the mystery of Christ— to be faithful to the congregation that I've been given, these are the things that I do to challenge myself then, is to say, I don't ever want to grow bored. And I don't ever want to just rest on my laurels and say, I got this. Mm-hmm. And that's just my own personal thing. Yeah. Um, and so I challenge myself, and in challenging myself, hopefully then that'll challenge the congregation. No, you approach it as an artist, you know, and that there's I do, yeah, 100%, it. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is, in, in my vocation then, and I think that's a good observation that you make. Thank you for making that. And I'll have to think about that for the rest of the week. <laughs> Is that to to look at that and to, again, the purpose of preaching the gospel is to set people free to be children of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And then ultimately all I'm trying to do is, is say, hey, Lord, could we pull more weeds and less wheat? Yeah. And, and rather than wield a club in the pulpit, can I wield a scalpel? Hmm. And are you so. really ever done learning your craft? That's the other thing too. Yeah. Hmm. And I think if you say, well, I put in my 10,000 hours, I've learned this, I've got it. I think that's when you become bored and that's when you become lazy and complacent. And that's when you mail it in yeah. and you just assume, well, because I'm in the pulpit, I preach the gospel. <laughs> that's why, that's why all these progressive schemes that we talked about way at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, they all, they always add more levels. So exactly. yeah, you get to black belt and then there's different degrees of black belt. Right. There's know? coral belt. In fact, a guy just got his white belt, a white belt with one red stripe because he was a coral belt. And now he's gotten so far. They're like, now you're a white belt with one red stripe. He's like, he's beaten the boss at the end of the game and become the boss at the end of the game. That's right. Yeah. Just keep reinventing <laughs> the rules. Right. And it's never ending. Uh, and that's the thing. In, in relation to our neighbor, how much love is too much? There's no such thing because Jesus loves you with unlimited, measureless love. Right. And all you're sent into the world to do in the context of your vocation is, well, the same. Yeah. Well, and that's the problem is you don't necessarily have a, um, a objective feedback loop, you know, to yeah. tell you, um, right. here's the benefit of what you just did just in this moment. Right. right. Sometimes you might get a compliment or something, but mm-hmm. but that's not the same as like you can you can actually observe the benefit immediately, the spiritual benefit right. or something. It's like hitting one green light and then you blow your water pump. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, I hit a green light. And then your engine explodes. And it's like, oh, wait, no. <laughs> Which would I trade for? <laughs> mm, successful well, you're there. Yeah. Right, yeah. And that's the danger, I think, pastorally, and maybe parentally too, is is measuring your success by like what you just pointed out, those little tidbits that are kind of fed to us. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then you have something cataclysmic happen. Or something that throws a monkey wrench in it and you go, oh, wait a minute. I thought I was really doing this well. And now this comes along out of nowhere. I didn't realize that. Versus humility, which yeah. is to be humble, which is to say, I'm of no importance. I'm, a, yeah. I'm the vessel. I'm the instrument. That's all I am. And this could all be gone tomorrow. <laughs> and it could all be gone tomorrow. And yet the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the Lord. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I know at the last day, I will see him face to face in the flesh. I die. Yeah. And that even my pain and my struggle now are a consequence of the work of God working out my salvation. Mm-hmm. This is the Holy Spirit. So sanctification can be painful for sure because mm. it's cross, because it's your vocation. So I got nothing else. No, that's good. I'm good. It's heavy. So, uh, yeah, I think that's good. I'm listening to The Perfect Circle nonstop and all things Maynard James Keenan right now. The new Perfect I Circle noticed. album came out. It's so good. Um, it's so good. It's just so good. <laughs> so layered and just mature and just like the like we were talking about it's like every track he does a different vocal technique and it's the freest i've heard him as a as a vocalist but it's not it's not a sloppy production oh no it's so tight yeah and so so it's free and yet it's precise at the same time yeah exactly that he is really a master of his craft at this point Mm-hmm. And I'm now I'm really excited to hear Tool at the end of the year. If the Tool album comes out by the end of the year, like it's scheduled to, mm-hmm. it's that's going to be a very interesting Tool album too, um, because of what he's doing vocally and even with his lyrics. His lyrics are extremely mature too. Yeah. Um, and and what he's trying to say with his vocals and how tight they are. Well, it's like in the interview uh, that you, that uh, you linked over to me that yeah, you know uh, what he's done between the the vineyard and the restaurants and kind of rejuvenating that town basically yeah. his hometown yeah. um 
is it's grounded him lyrically. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, he has real experience <clears throat> through yeah. the farming and through the, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything that he's doing there to, to, right. He's tied back to the earth. He's tied back to reality. It's really tied back it to reality. Exactly. There's a way that a musician can kind of live in their own world and then it, it become like Taylor Swift yes. or something. <laughs> and it was funny too, because in that, in that four part, was that a revolver? It was revolver mm-hmm. it was. was the name of On the, YouTube. the magazine. Yeah. yeah. Four, four parts. We'll link to it. But is that the chef that cooks at his restaurant, He's like, why, why, why? I'm not, a, I didn't go to Paris. I didn't go to Italy. You know, I, I'm not a professionally trained chef. And he's like, I like you. <laughs> yeah. And you, like, and, and you know the food, you know the region. And you know the food because you, you grew here. up in this. Yeah, you live here and you're local and you're not going to run off and take some other gig in New York or Las Vegas or Los Angeles. And you're tied to the land and you're tied to the, what comes out of the land, you're tied to the people here. And it comes out in the cooking. That's again, the expression of the art comes through in that way. And so, yeah, when you see him then in the barbershop, he's just Maynard. This is his barbershop. He's a little, you know, and yeah, he's a rock star and all these other things, but locally he's just Maynard. And I like that. I like the, the earthiness of his approach to everything that he does then. That's an authenticity, um, right? It is. And, but I, I think it takes going through a really inauthentic ecosystem to realize, to go, oh, I want to live a simple life. Yeah. Living and, in LA. And yeah. And being a part of the music scene and the music business and being a rock star and all that stuff. <clears throat> he came out the other side and went, yeah. And you know, in, in relation to Maynard, it takes tool five, six, seven years to make an album. So he's got a lot of time to marinate in that versus mm-hmm. so many bands who put out an album every other year or every three years, because, okay, you're starting to slip off people's radar. It's time for another album, another tour, more videos, more exposure to keep this machine going. Versus Maynard, who's saying, there's so much time in between Tool albums, i got to invent all these other projects for myself. Yeah. What am I going to do? And what he's chosen to do, like you said, is basically seek out reality, seek reality in its yeah. rawest form, and then stay there. And then every once in a while, he, he comes out to record an album and tour the world. But that's not, for him, it's like the reversal of most other musicians or artists. Well, it's like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, right? Yeah. That, that when you're in a, when you're creative, um, you, you need, especially if you're a creative that, or actually I should say it this way. If you're in a service industry, um, you need something that that's tactile and visible and that, you, you know, you can attribute, um, say I made this, right? Yeah. I did this. And, uh, so he's found that, right. That right. <laughs> he, a lot of his work is creative and we probably never see it. Right. But, yeah, exactly. But yeah. he has, but he has the vineyards, and the vineyards will last, right? And he has right. The, and then he opened up that. What is it called? I can't remember. Uh, where he has other people who make wine who aren't really that well known. Oh, yeah, it's kind of like a place. tap room, but it's for, for yeah, wine. for yeah. wine exactly. And this reminds me because yeah, De Blas was asked uh, on Saturday. He was asked what his favorite book is, and he said it's the monk that sold his who sold his Ferrari. And really, it's about a guy who was extremely affluent, who became a monk. He basically looked around his life and went, I worked my whole life and sacrificed everything to get what I what I thought I wanted and needed. I, I'm a success according to my own definition of success, and yet I'm completely unhappy. Mm. I'm anxious. I'm on medications, all these things. What's going to make me happy? So he went the other direction and went, I'm just going to give everything away and yeah. go be a monk. <laughs> and at 46, I can say at least for myself that that's – and my wife and I having this conversation for about an hour, two hours yesterday is – of really asking the question, what is success to us mm-hmm. and asking uh, why and the goal of what we do and as a couple, as individuals, so that living together and, and being a couple 
being married, being parents, and so forth and so on, we're not confused about what those words mean to us because there's so many people around us that want to tell us this is what it means that to be successful or this is what we want. And it's like, great, you want to see that happen for us, but maybe we don't. Mm-hmm. Or right. that's great that you want to see that, you want to do that for us, go ahead and do it, but don't expect me to help you because that's your project, not my project. Mm-hmm. And you're invested in that for me and that's awesome and I can't thank you enough and I'm grateful, but that's your project, not my project. So you go ahead and do that for me. And then when you're done, come and talk to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have wealthy friends who think I'm, who think I'm too poor. And I have poor friends who think I get paid too much. And everybody wants to tell me what's best for me or my family or or my ministry. But nobody really takes the time to ask, what do you need? What what do you define as success? And what what would make you happy or satisfy you? It's always we see this, again, surface details, and then we'll tell you what will make you happy and what we define as success for you. And then we'll do something or, you know, work towards making that happen for you. And if you're not clear about that for yourself, you might get in a situation where you're saying, I've sacrificed so much to get what I wanted. I've gotten to the goal. Why am I so unhappy? Yeah. And for us, it's simplicity. Yeah. And And for others, it's not. That uh, lack of communication in relationships is kind of at the center of uh, one of the things I've been consuming media-wise, which is the um, Lost in Space on Netflix. Yeah. Is is that you have... um, you know, you have this family dynamic and you have this community dynamic and then mm-hmm. this, you know, ec- the Xeno, the, the outsider, the, the robot mm-hmm. and how they don't, they, they just aren't talking to each other. They're not, mm-hmm. and, and, and but they each have their own expectations and standards. And, yeah. right. and interestingly enough, you can try to run away from your problems, but into space and yet they follow you. <laughs> right. You know? Uh, so you, you might actually have to approach them head on. And so that's, well, that's there can't be any drama if we don't leave out key plot details in the dialogue, right? So I always get mad at when people are told, you know, the key piece of plot detail, and then they go and talk to the person that they really need to communicate that detail to, yeah. and they choose to not communicate it, which there wouldn't be 25 more minutes of the show if they did. And yet, to your point, then in real life, we tend to do that all the time. We, we leave do it out key plot no, details. It's completely accurate. I mean, <laughs> right? It's aggravating, but it's completely. That's why accurate. we get so mad at movies and TV shows for doing it, because yeah. we do it, and then we wonder why people get mad at us or why, like you said, the the relationship is out of whack or has gone sideways, or or you're sitting there going, "How did this happen? Like, I didn't see this coming." Well, yeah, but did you communicate? Yeah, conflict with each avoidance other? is part right. of our nature. Yeah. Huge, right? Because again, going back to fear and insecurity, mm-hmm. it's like, why are you afraid? Yeah, let's kick the tire down. The, yeah, exactly. That. So yeah, Lost in Space, New Perfect Circle album, Eat the Elephant, uh, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, or yeah, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Mm-hmm. What else? The Mayor James Keenan Got interview, because again, fourth episode, Jiu-Jitsu. Um, all things in... Uh, good time but otherwise i got nothing else go check out again go check out peter's creed uh commentary on luther's catechisms i think next week we are agreed we're going to go into the lord's prayer fun and uh, this will force me to order that volume that i don't have good so that'll be good too but go check out peter's it's a gold mine it's a treasure trove we could pretty much dedicate this podcast to just reading peter's for probably the next decade yeah i was gonna say at least a few years right at least um because there's just so much to cover and uh, we couldn't possibly do it even in five parts. So go check out Peter's and uh, yeah, enjoy being a baptized child of God. Enjoy being a catechized Lutheran. Enjoy the Lutheran catechism for all of its radicality. Oh, that's the wrong show. Yeah. 
<laughs> Wrong bump music. No, that's not it either. Oh, well. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Go check out, go subscribe. <laughs> go leave a five-star review for us if you think we deserve it. Uh, apologize to the one-star reviews. But really, you know, <laughs> come on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's all good. But uh, yeah, go buy the coffee. Gillespie's Coffee is Children to Feed. And go check out the Gospel Boldly podcast. Go check out Higher Things website. Go subscribe. Go uh, click that donate button. The gospel's free, but producing these shows are not. Uh, conferences are coming up. And right. I'll be at Carlton doing plenary with Pastor Borgert. So if you want to know what sanctification sounds like during my plenary, this is a good preview. <laughs> there you go. It'll be catechetical. It'll be the third article of the creed. It'll be a lot of Luther. So uh, look forward to seeing everybody at Carlton this summer and at all the other conferences. Otherwise, hope we pass the audition. See ya. Adios. like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant. And delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee new how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and delicious.